Thanks for joining us tonight. This is February the 6th. Just about February the 7th. Okay, so it's now midnight on the East Coast. Uh, this is Midnight in the Desert, and tonight we are joined by author John Stedman, who will be with us in the second and third hours. And we're going to be discussing his book, Aliens, Robots, and Virtual Reality Idols. These are all topics uh, listeners of this channel are accustomed to discussing, and especially in the last year, we spent quite a lot of time talking about the various science fiction futures depicted in films in the 80s and 90s, which seem to be taking place right now in very conspicuous ways, uh, which seem to be beyond coincidence, uh, almost to the point where things seem to be scripted, and, and often badly at that. But there's this well-known phenomenon we often discuss of what we call predictive programming. For example, the movie Blade Runner, pretty much described in many ways, 2020, various features of Running Man, various features of Demolition Man, Space Odyssey 2001, Brave New World, 1984, all seemed to intersect with 2020. But beyond the superficial things, there were specific things that people pointed out that were just very conspicuous. Like, for example, Demolition Man. You had a future of social distancing where you couldn't even high-five. You know, they're post-toilet paper. And it's in the future after these some sort of a catastrophe, but you have society uh, divided into these compact cities and then the people out in the wilderness. But it pretty much... It's the typical dystopian vision of the future. Uh, and also, by the way, 2021 is the year that Mad Max took place. Just worth noting. But sometimes it seems like the authors of the science fiction are often authors of the establishment science and the way that it's presented year by year on the world stage. You know, for example, uh, Space Odyssey 2001. If you remember this movie with the, the monoliths, Hell, the AI. That movie starts off with this mysterious monolith that kind of sets the tone for the movie. But what, what did we have in 2020? Just monoliths appearing all over the place. Like something is telling us to pay attention to these particular ideas and movies. So then we have movies like Mars, I mean, sorry, books as well. Uh, books like 1984, Mars, A Technical Tale, which is about to come true. If you don't know about that one, The Mars Project, a technical tale written by Werner von Braun. And this book describes the first colony on Mars with a, a, a dictator of sorts. It's structured like a papacy. But the, the dictator on Mars, the first one, is called the Elon. Well, Elon Musk right now is planning to put people on Mars in 2026. So he seems to be living out a role that was authored for him, which makes all many of these individuals seem all the more phony. The fact that they seem to just come out of books. And we've reached peak 1984, I think just a few weeks ago, when a certain political organization got nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And it's just dishonest to equate looting, fires, dozens of deaths, major disruption with peace. You know, it's a inversion of the word peace. And that's what typified, of course, 1984. 
Uh, the movie Blade Runner, interestingly enough, uh, it ties in the themes of re the replicants basically are uh, people being contact traced, carriers of a virus. So in, in that movie, one of the features was the truck, which manifested in reality on the world stage in the form of Elon Musk's Cybertruck. And that Cybertruck emerged November 2019, which is the time, the month, the year that that book was set. The book was set in that year. So these days I'm pointing out that many of the dystopian visions that were envisioned by the prophets of science have been coming true. And I use the word prophets advisedly because it seems like we're living through a projected future. And in many ways, uh, they've been described as prophets, the ones I'm talking about. Uh, for example, and these are the ones written about in the book that we're going to be talking uh, to the author about, uh, William Gibson, which even if you haven't read any of his books, uh, his books are the basis for the Matrix trilogy. And then we have H.P. Lovecraft. If you're familiar with Lovecraft, it's uh, really, I wouldn't know if you'd call it science fiction. They often call them horror, but there's a point where the two overlap. You know, look at a movie like Alien. Definitely an overlap there. And then we are going to also be talking about uh, Isaac Asimov, which, you know, that's where you get into the foundation. And again, how interesting that this ties in to the richest man in the world who has a rocket ship to Mars. He took... Musk took Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, which is basically a book series about starting over somewhere else, rebooting humanity as a founder and what that means, what it entails, what kind of creative control you have over the expression of humanity in this new place. Well, he put that book, that series of books, in the trunk of the car, the Tesla Roadster that they sent into space. Not a Bible, not a Quran, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, which should tell you something. You know, it seems like more and more uh, the modern scientific paradigm seems to approximate a religion, even to the point of uh, promising people roads paved with gold, pearly gates, asteroids full of diamonds. There's a piece of rock called Psyche 16 kilometers across, they say, that you can bring in just trillions of dollars worth of precious metals. And I have seen some news lately, kind of a side note, but maybe not, because we're talking about science fiction. But it does seem to be the case that there may be some sort of contention over the moon, like China, Russia, America may fight over lunar resources. They're going to fight over moon rock, most likely. All right, uh, if you're in the comments, by the way, we'll be answering your, call, your uh, questions. So if you can't join, if you want to just call in, uh, call in. But if you can't, just go into the chats. We're here in uh, DLive, YouTube, Periscope, and a few others. So what I also want to do is uh, go into the book. I was just going to kind of peruse the table of contents. I haven't read it in its entirety. I just picked it up. But I have read the authors that he discusses, which is why I thought this was such an interesting uh, subject here. Because we've been talking about many of these same things, uh, specifically how the intersection and the intentional conflating of fiction and science fiction. Like here's an interesting one relating to H.P. Lovecraft. 
So H.P. Lovecraft, uh, his mythos has it that mankind was put here or altered or taken over by aliens uh, in some distant past. And the way he describes it, they, they came from the sky probably in a comet and rained down that basically the ocean's an alien, more or less. And the, the form that the aliens take in his mythos are these like squid-headed things, very intelligent, and they interact with us through our subconscious. I'm talking like mind parasites. I mean, it's an interesting idea. Supposedly, according to the story, I mean, they landed and they formed a city at the bottom of the ocean. And the place that H.P. Lovecraft pinpointed as the location of these old ones and the alien civilization uh, that just happens to be the pole of inaccessibility uh, the place designated as the most remote from human habitation on the globe and so this is a place which is also known for two other reasons one captain nemo twenty thousand leagues under the sea jules verne another giant in sci-fi the first one to really conceptualize landing on the moon in fiction that's where his character went pole of inaccessibility same place where the old ones from the Lovecraft mythos landed and then furthermore that's the same location that NASA calls the satellite cemetery because this is where they crash land any old satellites so they put them into orbital decay and drop them off so it's like wait so the satellites 161 so far and counting Old satellites are dumped in the same place where the Elder Gods crash-landed and the same place where Jules Verne pinned as the, uh, the location of Captain Nemo's voyage down, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Very interesting. A couple of other themes here with Lovecraft, though, um, have to do with the, the nature of subconscious, and I think the aliens being under the water may actually symbolize that but we'll talk about that with the with the author um, in detail but the place is called the pole of inaccessibility and again they call it the satellite cemetery and this had me thinking about a few things uh, for one i'm thinking wait so the spacecraft cemetery it's in the south pacific ocean uninhabited area it had me thinking can they just crash land these things whenever they feel like it with accuracy like, doesn't that make every orbiting router of Starlink an ICBM? Like, could they just pull it down? So the space ha spacecraft uh, cemetery is what it's actually called. It says here, this is a region in the southern Pacific Ocean east of New Zealand where spacecraft that have reached the end of their usefulness are deorbited and destroyed. So I want to know how. Do they shoot them down? Like, how do they bring them down? It says, this area is centered on Point Nemo, the oceanic pole of inaccessibility. It's the furthest location from any land, lies between Eastern Island and Antarctica. It's chosen for its remoteness, limited shipping traffic, so as not to endanger human life with any falling debris. Yeah, falling satellites. That's happened a couple of times. Uh, Samsung had a satellite that fell last year. If you saw that, it was a selfie satellite where they put a Samsung smartphone 
on a satellite and they put it in space so you could have a selfie taken from the satellite's camera of a of an Instagram account where you're being uploaded. So you could see yourself against the curve of the earth with space as a backdrop. Really great concept and a lot of people lined up to do it. Well, it turns out that this Samsung selfie satellite wasn't actually in space. It wasn't actually a satellite. It was a camera dangling from a balloon with a couple solar panels, you know, solar panels and a little frame, but you know, it was a satellite, I guess. But it fell in someone's front yard in Michigan, just crashed into a tree. Luckily, it didn't hit anybody. But they didn't bother to tell anyone, oh, by the way, you're not actually going to be photographed in space. You're just 20 miles up. That's not the only time. But I haven't seen any satellites fall that weren't attached to balloons. Now, you all remember the movie... Uh, Truman Show, which is a movie about a character who's in a giant movie stage and he thinks it's the whole world and he doesn't know it's just a stage because everybody's an actor and they're all lying to him. But he starts to wake up to the nature of his cage, of the illusion, when a satellite falls from the ceiling structure far above the fake sky and it lands in the street. He takes a look at it and it says... Canis Majoris, Sirius, Dog Star. So the Dog Star, which is a very significant star in all of the different occult and uh, mystic religious traditions, the Masons worship it. Uh, the Dog Star, Sirius, was represented with a stage light that fell, and it caused him to wake up to the falseness of his world, and then he left. Very interesting story, you know, the Truman Show or the True Man Show. Not really about a TV show character. It's about an inauthentic person becoming an authentic person. And his initiation started with the light of that star. I mean, very interesting storyline. But anyway, um, it didn't have a balloon attached to it, was my point. So supposedly, the spacecraft cemetery is where all the satellites are being dropped says here the defunct space station Mir and six... Oh, yeah, this is the Mir station fell there. Now, the Mir station's an interesting thing. Uh, if you look back on that one, it fell. Uh, uh, hello, can you hear me okay, caller? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Is this you, uh, John, right? I'm sorry, what'd you say? Is this John? John? Yeah, you know, I was waiting on an actual, a specific caller. I'm sorry, but we can go ahead. Um, did you have any comments on what we're talking about? I just want to let you know, I may, oh, yeah. I may have yeah, to abandon I the had call. Comments. Awesome. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so what? Uh, yeah, I was, I was interested in the uh, alien like living underwater. I think I was actually thinking about that the other day. Okay. Well, hey, caller, I'm gonna get back. Hello. To, hey, Hello. John. Glad Hi, I didn't know I had to call you. I was waiting for your call. Are we all right? Oh, yeah. I was just introducing people to uh, the topic and what we're going to be discussing this evening. And okay, good. So everyone who just uh, arrived and those who've been here, this is John Stedman, author of Aliens, Robots, and Virtual Reality Idols in the Science Fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, Isaac Asimov, and William Gibson. Uh, how are you doing tonight, John? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. 
Okay, well, why can don't you hear me? Can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah, loud and clear. We have Good. a large audience here. And oh, so a large audience. I love it. If, you have, if they have any questions, they're going to ask in the chat, and I'll run it by them. So, yeah, briefly, though, um, I was going through your, your book and the three different authors that you're focused on. So why don't you describe your book, the basic premise, and why you chose these authors? Well, I chose the authors because I'm actually fascinated by all three of them. They're among my favorite uh, authors. And uh, I know certain similarities. Uh, at first glance, it doesn't seem like there's very many similarities between them at all. But what happens is that uh, I noticed that uh, Lovecraft, of course, uh, argues that uh, aliens, they call it cosmic indifferentism, but it's actually alien indifferentism because it, it's the things in the cosmos that are indifferent to humankind. And they're usually malefic. You know, they don't like humans at all. And uh, so that's the big theme in Lovecraft, you know, the alien indifferentism. But then I noticed when I was reading Asimuth and Gibson's that uh, he's got different, they, these two authors have different sets of aliens, but they're kind of human-created aliens. Like the robots are created by humans. The virtual reality idols are created by humans. I call them virtual reality idols because Gibson, in one of his novels, is called the Adoro, and Adoro is actually Japanese for idol. And so I adapted that term. But what happens with the robots and the VR idols is they also become malefic alien entities too, but they have to evolve into it, you know, unlike Lovecraft. Lovecraft are homegrown, well, actually cosmic grown, you because know, they're already aliens. But the uh, Gibson and the Asmuth ones have to actually evolve into being alien entities. And then once they do that, they have uh, goals that are actually antithetical to human goals. So in essence, they too become... Uh, antithetical and uh, malefic to human beings. So I noticed that, and then I noticed another thing about so these aliens. Let me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So go on, ahead. on this go one, ahead. okay. So H.P. Lovecraft, and I was talking about this a minute ago. How we're talking about these invaders, essentially. They came from somewhere else. They're they're not even human-like. They're almost uh, uh, like squids, octopus-like beings. Maybe a different kind of consciousness. But uh, the ones that William Gibson writes about. Uh, you're, you're right. These are like the ones in the Matrix where they kind of took over. Uh, the AI uh, took over. So they're, you're talking about uh, basically William Gibson has a different look on aliens versus Lovecraft's who are just kind of like not even the same species. So in Lovecraft's universe, human beings are like what? Just uh, ants. Yeah, well, you could view it that way. You know, they, they do tend to view us as kind of insignificant, but they're not really invaders. What they are, they actually colonized the planet way before humans even came. So they actually are the original colonists. I, I mean, they were here before uh, human beings even developed. In fact, Lovecraft argues that they actually sparked human evolution. Now, about, uh, four, about four billion years ago or so, we had uh, a single-cell life on this planet. And what happened is around uh, 1 billion BCE, that's when the first of the alien races colonized the Earth. And what they did is they started messing around with the one cells, and then they kind of created two cells. And then later on, you know, much later on, in the Cenozoic era, what happened is the same race, the, uh, el the elder things, they actually started messing around with primates after they'd evolved. So... What Lovecraft is arguing in his stories is they were the original colonists on Earth, and we wouldn't even be here unless they were here. You know, so he he doesn't even give the planet Earth or humans even the credit of actually having developed an evolutionary strain. It's all due to these aliens, 
and there's three different sets of alien races. I talk about them in, in the book, the uh, extraterrestrial ones. As there's also the terrestrial aliens, which are the insmooth creatures. But so uh, we're not actually the original people on this planet. So we're the, you know, I guess you could say by virtue of evolution, we're the ones that invaded the planet. Okay. You know, I mean, people talk all the time about Native Americans being the original colonizers of America, and we have to respect that. But, you know, really, these a these alien entities were the original inhabitants of the planet Earth. So, you know, I mean, we're all, we're all newcomers. Well, that's one of the themes with H.P. Lovecraft's stories, in many of his stories. It's about somebody, the protagonist, finding some uh, hidden bit of archaeology or some secret about the real history of the human race, and it's usually overwhelming. And it usually involves finding out that, yes, there's a, a past before us. And one of the themes in specifically Call of Cthulhu is the main character finds out that he's more or less uh, related or something to whatever's under the ocean, and they're telepathically reaching out to him. So that was one of the things about Lovecraft was that these aliens or whatever would reach people through their dreams. Yeah, that, that's a Lovecraftian theme, all right. Uh, and they call Cthulhu, you know, uh, definitely sensitive people usually are connected to that or they're more in tune with it. Uh, and then sometimes they become servitors or sometimes they become associated with the, the great old ones or with the uh, those are the uh, transdimensional entities, by the way. Uh, the great old ones. Right. OK, so let's speak on that for a moment here, because, you know, you brought up William Gibson and in the Matrix series, you have this thing where somebody is like possessed the agent smith takes them over is that what is that tantamount to a trans-dimensional alien is that what it would be like a possession or a, something eclipsing somebody else's consciousness well that's not really gibson's themes you know gibson's uh, in his books he, he doesn't have any of that sort of thing at all you know he has uh he has uh entities that have actually evolved into self-actualized entities and then what they do is they become alienated and then they start imposing their wills on people. But that theme that you just talked about, those characters you talked about, that's not Gibson. That's something else. You know, it's either a game based on Gibson or some other matter. But that's not Gibson himself. That's a good I mean, point. When I'm talking about they, they're, what is good, it? A good point there, though, is that, yeah, Gibson inspired a lot of stuff. And they take, you know, the movies, they take stuff and they kind of run with it. But, yeah, he's, he's the one... Uh, his book, The Sprawl Trilogy, is what I'm referring to. And in the second book, you had that Count Zero character who was right. working with um, these spirits, the Loa idols. And that's one of the topics I wanted to get into um, tonight as well, these Loa idols and, and how that works. Yes. Did you, were you reading my uh, section on that about the Loa idols? What the Loa idols are, were, like at the end, what happens in the Sprawl uh, uh, in the Sprawl books is in the first one, Neuromancer, uh, what, what happens is they do a run. They, uh, Case and his uh, companions do a run. A, they call it the Straylight Run. And they're trying to get into the uh, database there. And what happens is as a result of that, uh, trying to uh, enter the database, then something odd happens. I have to say it's something like a quantum effect. But what happens at that point is some new AI entity is actually suddenly formed suddenly formed just by them trying to get into that network. And uh, that's kind of like a, an adjunct kind of thing that happened. You know, it wasn't something they intended to happen. And Case, at the end of Neuromancer, doesn't even know about that until the entity contacts him. And the entity's name is Continuity. He, call, he calls himself, or he, he actually calls himself Matrix. 
in the original thing. And he actually kind of gives the impression that he's kind of like the god of the Matrix or the god of cyberspace. But it turns out that he's really not. You know, I mean, he's kind of over-dramatizing his actual role. But he actually views himself as being uh, like in charge of everything. But he's, but he's really not. And what's really interesting in, in all these uh, Gibson novels and sprawl ones, most computer users, people there online, they don't even know anything about Matrix. You know, so he's claiming he's subsuming the Internet all into himself, the cyberspace. But he's not doing anything of the kind. It's kind of like a self-delusion kind of thing that's going on here. And Case is actually real disrespectful for him. At the end, you know, he thinks, first of all, he's not matrix he thinks he's somebody else because he kind of presents himself as another ai entity that case encountered earlier but by that time he's fed up with ai entities they really don't do him any good he doesn't see any use for him but what happens is matrix is there and then somehow parts of cyberspace broke up too during that stray light run and that created the lower idols and what the lower idols are is they're actually based on the voodoo ent entities, but they're actually uh, electronic entities. They inhabit cyberspace. And they don't like Matrix. Matrix and them don't get along. They don't talk to them. They don't associate with them. And so that's what happens at the end of Neuromancer. Then when you get to Count Zero, you've got a group of, uh, uh, I guess you'd have to call them net runners or cyberspace surfers or whatever you want to call them, where they actually deal exclusively with, with the lower idols. And the lower idols are kind of like, they're not really sure what the lower idols are. They kind of present themselves like voodoo loa. I talk about in chapter 15, I think it is in my book. Right. Uh, yeah, chap right. chapter 15. And they appear in various forms, but they're not really the voodoo loa. What they are, they're just kind of like electronic creatures that have taken over the, uh, I guess, the presentation of the lower gotcha. idols. And, and they're, they're just as antithetical to humankind as any Lovecraft entities, too. What they're trying to do, basically, is get people into these kind of digital environments where they become brain dead. You know, they, they're, well, their bodies die, and then they end up living in some kind of virtual world, uh, but it's just their brains living there. They're, 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 it's kind of like their brains are uploaded, but the bodies die. Like the movie, Matrix. you saw the movie Matrix, right, where everybody's kind of hooked into, like, batteries and their minds are like in cyberspace, but their bodies are like kind of uh, batteries for the, these machine-like things. It's kind of similar to that. So the lower, what the lower are doing, they're actually like just trying to get people to die, basically. At least that's what it looks like they're doing. That My main point in the book is that all the aliens are incommensurable, including the robots and Lovecraft United, because we don't really know what their, their motives are. And their motives, they appear to be benign, but once we see them in action, it's not really benign at all. It's actually uh, malice directed toward humankind. You know, so I don't know if okay. I'm answering that. That's, that, that. that you, you are, actually, because yeah. there's a couple of things here. One, uh, this idea of aliens as being benefactors is kind of uh, wildly at, at variance with this other version of them, where they're here like War of the Worlds to wipe us out, or they're completely uh, just a different species, like uh, higher on the food chain or something. And so I wonder, you know, which is which, you know, are we looking at uh, different factions? But I find it interesting that aliens are represented both ways. And for Lovecraft, they were absolutely terrifying mind parasites. And I brought up the Loa idols from the Count Zero uh, book in the Sprawl trilogy because, yeah, you have this idea of these 
uh, this, these spontaneous emergences of these basically AI, but they take the form and personalities of these established characters, these voodoo loa, and that's how they interact with the people in cyberspace. And Yeah, but they trick them. Well, first of all, most people don't even know about them. Only this one cult of people that get in contact with know them about. And then the main character, of course, uh, she, uh, Mitchell, her name is, she actually knows about him because her father was working for a company and he actually implanted into her brain a way where she can actually uh, go right into contact with the Loa. Kind of like it, when the voodoos contact the Loa, they go through these ceremonies and then they get mounted by the Loa and they, they call them divine horsemen. And they kind of ride the human being and then you have the kind of mental contact with them and other kinds of physical contact too. But this uh, Mitchell character, this young girl, she's a young girl in Count Zero. She can actually do that just by thinking her way into it. So she can do it digitally. But uh, they're not the real low. What they are, they're actually, it's not really clear what they are. And they're, they're not really sure what they are. Like if you read the next book in the series, which was uh, Mona Lisa Overdrive, uh, Mitchell's all grown up now. She's actually a Sim Stim star. In other words, she does like performance art and she has a big following. And uh, in that book, the lower are getting weaker and weaker and they seem to be breaking up. And what happens in that when you've got another AI entity who calls himself continuity and he came into existence the same way that Matrix did and the same way that the lower entities as a quantum effect. You know, I mean, suddenly he wasn't there and then suddenly he's here and then he becomes self-actualized. So he goes through the whole process of evolving into an alien entity, which I kind of talk about in my chapter on Asimuth because I have to talk about how the robots evolve into uh, into alienated entities and then impose their wills on humans, even though we don't know what they want in a lot of cases. But the same thing happens in Gibson, but they're AI rather than robots. But what happens with continuity, he kind of still, he follows the same course that Matrix does. Like at the end of... Uh, Neuromancer, Matrix wanted to be in touch with something outside of himself, and apparently he created some kind of link with the extraterrestrial uh, from the Alpha Centauri. And it's, it's not clear whether he actually gets in touch with it or whether he wants to or whether perhaps him attempting to get in contact with it caused him to fragment and the lowest to create. But whatever happened, continuity tries to do the same thing. And so at the end of the Mona Lisa Overdrive, which is the last one of the Sprawl trilogy, you've got You've got continuity basically doing the same sort of thing, the lower gods, where he's subsuming them into himself. And then what he does, he tries to get Mitchell and then Bobby Newmark, which was actually her uh, associate in Count Zero. He, he tries to get them to be body dead. So they're bo they die uh, in existence and then their brains are uploaded to some other kind of digital universe. And then he wants to enlist their aid in trying to contact this alien entity on Alpha Centauri, although they're not sure exactly what that's all about, and he's not sure what it's all about either. But the interesting thing about it all is they seem to want to do the same thing the lowest did. They want to get people into these lands of the dead, and then they want to dominate them. You know, They want them to live there, and uh, they want to use them for some uh, purpose that isn't really clear. The, the novels don't really make it clear what they want to do. I don't see how uh, Mitchell or Newmark could actually help the continuity idol in a way, because he's actually in a box. He's uploading something called the Allop universe. So whatever they can do, they can't really 
give him that much help, but he wants him there for some. He wants him under his digital thumb, so to speak, just like uh, Matrix wanted to, and just like the Law Idols too. And it's not really clear what that's all about. But what is clear is that for the rest of the computer users, there's countless people out there in cyberspace using a computer for entertainment, the way we are or for business reasons, or for social reasons, and they're not even aware that all this is going on. So this is like some separate part of cyberspace that has nothing to do with the rest of it. So it's really kind of an interesting kind of thing, because in Lovecraft, the aliens are indifferent to humankind, and then in, in Gibson, the alien inclusionism, it also becomes malefic, but in, in, or in Asimuth, but in Gibson, what happens is that humankind is indifferent to the aliens. Most people could care less what's going on about, about you know, out in cyberspace, that yes. part of cyberspace. Yes, that's very... But they're certainly not gods. I mean, continuity thinks he's a god, too. He thinks he's subsuming the law and everything else into him, but nothing's really happening like that at all. I mean, so it's a big misconception on his part. So why don't you describe then, uh, so we've talked about Lovecraft and his concept of these indifferent aliens from the, the distant past that preceded us. And now we're, we're going into William Gibson, basis for the Matrix. And now um, for a moment here, let's talk about Isaac Asimov and his relevance in this topic and his view on the humanoid robots and robot inclusionism. Yeah, well, robot inclusion is what I kind of show in my book that there's really not much difference between uh, alien indifferentism and alien inclusionism. At first glance, uh, the, the robots look like they're very beneficial to humankind. You know, that's what they build them for. You know, when, when humans start going out into the uh, into the uh, into their galaxy and they wanted to colonize other planets, they took robots with them. Now, robots were banned on Earth. Humans didn't like robots at all. You couldn't sell robots to humans, and so they were only good for off-world things. But over time, these people that go off into colonize, they co end up colonizing about 50 worlds. They kind of evolve away from being humans, too. They have a longer lifespan. And then they get more and more robots included into their society to help them. And they call themselves spacers. And they, they disassociate themselves from humans. And they try and keep humans back on the earth. They don't want humans colonizing the, uh, the uh, outer worlds at all. But what happens is Asimuth is arguing in his stories that uh, this actually causes the demise of the spacer civilization uh, for two reasons. One... They have a long lifespan. They live like for two or 3,000 years, much longer than human beings. And so they don't really cooperate or work with other people. They, if they're doing research, they like just do it by themselves because they've got all the time in the world to do that. Or they, they, they just don't like to interact. Like the Solarians, they don't like to associate with, uh, with uh, each other at all. You know, they live on these big, big estates. They have like hundreds, thousands and thousands of robots that take care of them. They interact only through digital media, kind of like the way young people do today with their cell phones. But they, they're not comfortable with uh, physical contact with people. And so the spaces have evolved to such a point where they're kind of like in their isolated little estates and they don't want to be in contact with humans. And then they've got robots to do all, to handle all their needs. And so the society actually ends up stagnating over time. Those 50 worlds are the very last of it. And then uh, later on, when humans finally do leave the Earth and colonize again, they don't even remember the spacers. The spacers are long gone by that time. But the robots, they start out being included, and you'd think it'd be beneficial, but as it turns out, in Asimus' work, it's not beneficial at all. 
You know what? You know, because that's, that's... what happens is that two of the robots, one's a humaniform robot, where the, which looks just like we do. That's Danielle Olival. And then the other one, Giscard Revenal, he's actually a humanoid robot. So he looks like a robot. I mean, he's got the human shape, but there's no mistaking him for being a human being. He's got the, got the metal exterior, the kind of red eyes and stuff. These two, between the two of them, find a way to foster something called galaxia. I talk about that in my chapter on, on asthma, where it's like a kind of a planet, and it's humans on the planet, but their DNA has been impregnated into the actual planet, too, and in terms of the natural world and, and animals. And it becomes like a group mind kind of situation where everything that's human is kind of rooted out of it, and they're not human beings, the people that live on uh, on the on the planet, you know, they're not human beings at all. And what the two robots want to do is extend galaxia throughout the entire galaxy. So when you get to the end of Asimov's work, and we're to, we're talking about a long time in the future, by the way, because the period where Olivo and Revelall actually uh, are uh, actually formulating their zeroth law and then uh, trying to direct human evolution. We're only talking about like 31st to the 38th century, but we're talking way, way in the future when humans have, there's been two things. There's been the Galactic Empire and then the Foundation Empire, and way back at that time, that's when the robots, their plans start bearing fruit, and Danielle Olivall is still alive. You know, he's like about 44,000 years or so old, and he's still alive. And at that point, it looks like the human race is going to be supplanted. The galaxy is going to be supplanted by galaxy. And so what we've done is the robots have started out being actually beneficial, have taken us basically to the same point that Lovecraft takes us. Because the alien, uh, it's uh, malevolence rather than benevolence. You know, So there's really no difference between the two ultimately in Lovecraft or in Asmus work. Interesting. Interesting how they arrive at this. You know, THX 138, George Lucas, that's a movie that shows this dehumanizing of man where we're basically uh, sanitized, socially distanced, separated, shaved, degendered, denamed. So we're just these uh, basically uh, pods, you know, they, they turn us into like little, uh, almost, it's, it's almost like they've turned us into robots in that movie THX 1138. Uh, then there's another one for the it's a pixler it's an animated one for the children it's called wally -E, which is about a future where mankind has ruined the earth so they move into this massive spaceship like an ark and they're served by robots day and night this makes them lazy they live longer like 700 years but their bones are weak they're obese and they spend all their time looking at screens being weighted on hand and foot by these robots meanwhile they have robot servants fixing the earth but these are just two examples of where there's a point where in many of these science fiction depictions that in the future the technology overcomes man at some point and makes us into uh, subservient, weakens us, makes us dependent. And very common theme there and it's, it's, it's very interesting how you're talking about Isaac Asimov in the future eventually arriving at that same point where Lovecraft, you're right. Uh, well, uh, if you check out my chapter, it's actually a lot more subtle. The problem with movies are that they're kind of they're kind of clunky. They're kind of cumbersome because they take like basic concepts and then they turn it into something that's not very subtle or not very sophisticated a lot of times. But in Asimov, you'll find that it's very sophisticated because all it depends on is choice, basically human choice. Like the uh, people that live on the planet, uh, it's called the planet Gaia. And what happens is they're all living in this kind of group mind thing. They're not really human beings. 
and I would define something that's not a human being is when it's actually more like an object than the subject of history. And so these, they're kind of like, uh, they're kind of like objects, you know, they've got the group mind thing going on, but all the things that distinguish human beings, free will, uh, objectivity, drive, ambition, aggression, all the things that cause you to push out and colonize a galaxy are missing on the planet Gaia. And what happens is they're very weak. They can't really make decisions. And what happens is Daniel Olivo wants that to happen for humanity because it's kind of like his misinterpretation. Him and Giscard back in the uh, 38th century came up with a law. You know what the uh, three laws of robotics are, right? Uh, why don't you go ahead and refresh uh, myself and the yeah. listeners? Well, for the first one is that uh, a human being cannot harm, a uh, robot cannot harm a human being or through inaction cause a human being to come to harm. The second one is a robot has to always uh, obey whatever a human being asks him unless it violates the first law. And then the third law is the robot always should be able to protect his own existence except if that conflicts with either the first or the second laws. Now what these clever robots do is they become alienated entities throughout the course of the, uh, the uh, robot novels. And these are Caves of Steel, the, um, the Naked Sun, and the Robots of Dawn. Those are the core documents of it. And then the last one is um, Robots and Empire. And in all four of those novels, the robots slowly turn, they slowly evolve away from being beneficial to humans and, certain, and having humans' best interests in heart to something entirely different. And it's kind of a misguided thing. They're not really intentionally doing it, but what they're trying to do is they think they're helping humanity, and what they do is they develop their own fourth law, and they just develop it through a series of conversations. And uh, again, like with Giscard, it was kind of like a quantum effect. He developed telepathic powers due to uh, a freak in his programming, so that's a quantum effect, basically. But these two put their heads together, and what they do is they come up with a fourth law. And now this is what the fourth law is. Uh, a robot cannot cause any harm to humanity or through an action cause humanity to suffer harm. Now think about that for a minute. Think how subtle that is. What they've done is they've redefined, and they call it the zeroth law, which means the zero law because it supersedes the other three. What they've done, they very cleverly redefined it away from human beings as individuals to humanity. Now you can see what the dangers of that is because then by calling, not focusing on individual human beings, harming individual human beings, but if you're looking at human beings in an abstract way like humanity, you've opened up a terrible can of worms here because pretty soon that allows you to define humanity and then you can exclude people from being human based on your definition and then you can also argue, well, uh, some individual humans might come to harm with some of the things we're going to do, but it's for the benefit of humanity. So this is where all the movements, like the groupthink movements, there's always a danger point they get to. And that's what these robots do. And so the reason why they try and establish this Gaia and then create a galaxy they call Galaxia to actually where all the humans are you know, like the people on Gaia, they do it because they're misguided. They think that somehow... Once you get humans in that kind of state and remove them to a point where they're just uh, where they're not they're not subjects but they're objects, then they'll be safer for them. 
you know, there'll be less bloodshed, less conflict, less wars. And they don't realize that all those things, bloodshed, wars, and conflict and aggression are the reason why human beings have expanded to the galaxy in the first place. Why human beings create art. Why human beings fall in love. There has to be a modicum of these uh of this free will to do these things. And yes, it's got a dark side, but also it's got a positive side. But the robots, by eliminating what they think they're doing, is eliminating the dark side. But they're eliminating all sides. They're turning human beings into something that's not human at all. Now, that's very subtle. That's a lot more subtle than these movies you're talking about where they got like people, you know, like pod people or people hooked into machines. This is a planet of people that look reasonable. They look like... uh, serious, intelligent, educated people, but they're inside, in, inside, you know, they're very dangerous. And, and, uh, and it, so Asmuth is getting us to the same level that Lovecraft gets, uh, gets us to, you know, where basically you've got alien entities uh, exercising malice against human beings, but it's a lot more subtle than that. It's not like alien entities like suddenly appearing from different dimensions or suddenly coming from the dim past. This is like the things that we don't even recognize as being a threat to us. Yes, this is... It's it's it's, interesting stuff. It's like utopianism uh, run amok. And that's very similar to what we're seeing today with censorship, where the big media, uh, big social media platforms are removing bad ideas, offensive ideas, ideas that are disruptive to the status quo. And they're trying to do it to protect cyberspace so we can have safe talk, safe conversations. It's meant to make everything safer, uh, prevent the spread of dangerous misinformation. But what they're doing is they're killing spontaneity. They're destroying these interactions. And to me, that's robbing us of our humanity when they're taking away our free expression. And- you, you got it, right? This is, I'm not going to get into any political stuff here because, you know, they shut things down. I want the woke people. I want the far right. I want everybody to read my book. I want them to think seriously about what we're seeing here. What these robots have done is they've redefined humans to be humanity, right? Okay, what is this campaign against misinformation? It's misinformation. Somebody has to define misinformation, you know, and so what the people are doing, they're taking it upon themselves, just like these two robots did, to redefine something. They say, this is what misinformation is. And then they're going one step further. They say, everybody else has to believe in our definition of misinformation. And there is no such thing as other kinds of misinformation. It's exactly as we see it. And just shut up and believe it. That's basically what these robots are doing do at the end of this thing. Too. So I want everybody to take a look at what's, what's happening there. You know, Because what it is is words are being subtly redefined. And then there's no discussion about it. There's no Like right now, we're having a rational discussion about what's the difference between a single human being and harm coming to a human being versus harm to humanity. And we're talking about can you actually redefine humanity in that way. So we're actually having an honest conversation about that. But the people that are fostering the censorship and disinformation, they don't want to get to a reasonable conversation about They want you to accept their view because they believe that their view is the truth, just the way these robots believe that galaxy rather than galaxy is the truth and it's in our best interest, whether it hurts individual humans or not. 
Right. Very, very interesting points here. And that's one of the things I like about the, the genre itself of science fiction is that they form a hypothetical situation and they show you well, what happens if you follow this through to its logical conclusion. That's right. That's right. And, and look at what happens in Asimuth. Like he's got that whole Solaria plant. You know, I made this point several times. I made in an article that I wrote for New Dawn magazine. I call it Solaria and the Plight of the Millennials. But right now we're seeing our millennials uh, falling into the same thing that the Solarians did. And uh, Asimuth tells us the danger of this, what will happen, but they're doing it. We're, we're, it's actually happening right now. Now, not to the extent that we have on Solaria, but it is happening right now. So there's another thing that science fiction can show us. It can show us about what's happening right now. And we're seeing a lot of things that are happening right now. But Gibson, he's right on top of things. Like Gibson, I, you have a copy of my book at hand right now? I do. I, have uh, I don't know. I, have I don't know. I'll Kindle. tell you an interesting – I'll get you an interesting passage that you might want to uh, look at at your leisure, you know, when you're reading. You said you haven't read – I heard the first part of the show and you said you haven't read the whole, the whole thing yet. But um, let me see if I can find that. And I put the book on the screen for everybody here watching. In fact, um, why don't we take our first break here? So we'll be back in about okay. – uh, I'll, I'll be um, reintroducing you here in about four minutes. But I'm putting the book yeah, on I... the screen. And for everybody who just got here, uh, you can find the book on darkmatter.radio. I put a link. And it's Aliens, Robots, and Virtual Reality Idols in the Science Fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, Isaac Asimov, and William Gibson by John L. Stedman. And did you find that passage? Uh, yeah, I do have it. Okay, it's on page uh, pages two fifteen to two sixteen, and this tells us what uh, Gibson's his his main theme in his stories is. It's called dis it's about dislocation. You can start reading at dislocation, but after that, on page two sixteen, I talk about the four causes. And these are caused in the immediate future. Now, Gibson doesn't go as far into the future as Asimov, and he certainly doesn't go as far back as Lovecraft. You know, he stays closely around the 25th, 21st to the 22nd, possibly the 23rd centuries. And if you read those passages here, there's four things that he's talking about that are going to happen in the 22nd and the 23rd century. And, it, and it's really spot on what he's talking about. And we're seeing these things happen right now. Right today, you know, so are we taking a break and then we're yes, coming we'll, back? We'll come right back and we'll get into the four causes when we get back. So everyone, uh, think, just hold tight. This is Midnight in the Desert with John Stedman. We'll be back in just a few moments. For making Dark Matter your choice for entertaining and thought-provoking podcasts, engaging talk shows, top conspiratorialism, and breaking news from the fringe and beyond, Dark Matter appreciates its listeners and wants to say thank you to those who have been along for the ride since 2013. And now back to the 
All right, so we're back now for the second hour. Uh, we have our guest, John Stedman, and we're talking about his book right now, which I put on the screen, and I see a, a couple of people in the chat actually said that they may have placed an order here. And right now we're about to talk about the four causes. And so, hey, John, are you there with us? I'm right here. All right, so I have the book in front of me, and I'm scrolling through it now. So I want to get on the page that you're talking about with the four yeah. causes. Yeah, I'm on page uh, 215. You know, it's kind of interesting. You're scrolling. I got I got the physical thing in front of me. I, I'm still old school, you know. Streaming's fine. Scrolling's fine, you know. But there's nothing like holding an actual book in your hands. Oh, stuff. You know, I, yes. I mean, I'm old school. I'm old school. No, I'm with you on that. Uh, I carry around a piece of paper and a pen because I, I need the analog. I memorize things better when I write them. And I like the randomness of books that you don't get in a targeted search. I miss going through bookstores, but uh, you know that's that's a different uh, time, I guess. But um, it's convenient to have your book here right in front of me on Kindle. So if anybody's there, go to darkmatter.radio. They can pick up your book and uh, be reading along with us. Yeah, well, what, what it is is uh, Gibson's main theme is dislocation, which just means people live kind of fragmented lives. And they 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 live those lives because they they feel that they can't control societal force around them. But here are the four causes we are talking about. Now these should sound familiar to everybody that's listening here. Okay, the first one is the relentless onslaught of global corporations to control the flow of information and commercialize cyberspace, and the process subvert individual initiative and creativity. Now that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Uh, you know, uh, you know, hint, hint, you know. And there's also the equally relentless onslaught of technology uh, that actually redefines and infiltrates every facet of public and private life and dehumanizes those to immerse themselves. Look how people are immersed in technology. Now, we were talking before about how uh, people are constantly looking at their phones, constantly looking at their screens. You know, they don't like to even interact in public. I went to a beach one time. And the people were all sitting on the beach, and here's a beautiful sunny day, and what are they doing? Looking at their phones. And they're calling other people on the phones or texting other people to have them come to the beach to have an outing with them, and they're all just sitting there looking at their phones. You know, so the people are immersed completely in technology, and the problem is that they're not getting exposed to uh, information uh, in any kind of an objective way, or they're not encouraged to actually pursue the information or gain to whether it's true or not or whatever logical consequences are they're just it's just going into them and they're just accepting it and then there's the elevation of the cult of the celebrity now we see that look at these tv shows that they have on it in fact gibson's credited with actually in the 1980s late 80s of actually coming up with the idea of the reality show but look at these reality shows like the real housewives of salt lake city the my 600 pound life and stuff i mean the, the, they've pushed the call of celebrities in such a, a, a way where all these people are you know people are watching them they're taking it all in and it's w certainly working against the best interests of the, the people themselves but against the people they're watching it too and then finally there's a very telling point drug addiction substance abuse and disease now in gibson's most recent a series of novels. He's written two of them. They're called the Peripheral series. I don't know if you've read those yet, but the Peripheral is a very good book. I think it's his best one. And then the other one, the second one, Agency, just came out uh, last spring. 
and these books, his focus is on, on a group of people that live in London. It's around the 22nd century. And what happens is they're like 70 years away from a, a pandemic called the jackpot. And it's a combination of a, a lot of things, global warming and then disease and, and, and pandemics also. And what that does is that decimates like 80% of humankind. And then they have to kind of pick up the pieces afterwards. So uh, Gibson is right on target with all the things he's predicting, all the things he's talking about here. And it's a very dark, his stuff is very dark, but he doesn't take us past the 23rd century. If you want darkness past that, you have to go to Asmuth. And if you want darkness before that, you have to go to Lovecraft. Well, the point about the screens and the hyper-mediated lives that we have, where people are at a beach, but they're still looking at the screen, I think this is tantamount to a simulation where uh, people are trading in a lot of their perceptions for things they get through a screen, a second-hand perception, mediated perceptions. And it's so bad that even their worldview is shaped largely by computer models that are agreed upon by a consensus of uh, probably highly paid scientists. My point is uh, our realities are becoming increasingly filtered. And in many ways, it's like this is what the Matrix movie and the Matrix idea is talking about, where we do become enslaved, where we, we're put into bondage. And I brought up the movie WALL-E, which is animated, but in the same way, it shows a codependency and then an over-reliance on the technology, which then takes over and makes man into a, a weak, uh, obedient, uh, really not even a human, but at least he's safe, as you brought up earlier with this utopianism in Asimov. Like they, yeah, at what a cost, though. You know, He's safe, but at what a cost? Losing free will? using, I mean, losing the ability to uh, use your critical thinking skills, to make judgments, to actually interpret things objectively. I mean, at what a tremendous cost. You know, what's left is not something that I would consider fully human, and certainly I won't want to live in a world like that. I won't want to live in Galaxia, I can tell you that. Well, I think it's interesting how, and I'm not even getting political on this topic, but just for several years, there's been this pattern with the media, this deliberate effort to conflate uh, certain types of discussions with danger. So now, uh, like conspiracy theorists. So I'm looking at the word conspiracy, and it really just means breathe together. And if the number one enemy is a conspiracy theorist, it's kind of fitting that now we're at a time where they're really working hard to make sure all of our interactions are through a screen, that we're not literally breathing the same air as one another. And then I think that the mask and the, the medical... Um, protective equipment, the gear, the distancing, the protocol, in many ways, that takes away a lot of our communication. And it's almost watching people go into uh, almost like a hive mindset now, even with the, the social distancing. And I'm just looking at this from an anthropological perspective. It's like, if I was an anthropologist from another planet, I would look at this and I would think, okay, this is some sort of a, either a, like a religion taking over or some sort of hive mind because everybody's becoming less unique as individuals. And I think the, the removal of the face is one of the most visible expressions of this. You see, now that's an interesting theory. I never thought about masks uh, in that kind of way before, but you're perfectly right about conspiracy. I mean, it's just a, a simple word. It's actually a combination of two Latin phrases. Con means with. And then the other part of it is respiration. So it means just with breathing. And it means breathing with people. So, you know, all, that's all it means, really, just sharing sharing breath. It's it's just that innocent. 
you know, it's, it's just that innocent. But I, I can, I, I, that's actually a very interesting point that you raised. You know, I never thought about the, the wearing a mask and the social distancing in quite that way. Right. It's, it's, it's an interesting way to look at it, you know, because I'm just seeing it as it's like almost culture shock still sometimes to see it. And if you were looking at this from an outside perspective, you know, it, it might not be connected to anything other than just like a radical new social norm. But I think it robs us of our essential individuality just by the removal of our facial expressions. And when you look at interpersonal communication, uh, it takes away so much and it replaces it with what? The screen. So now we have the screen uh, between us in almost all of our conversations, which has some interesting, interesting connotations. And you brought up the Latin roots of conspiracy. Um, what about the word alien? Can you talk about the word alien and how you define that? Yeah, alien just comes from a word that's actually, uh, that's actually a Latin word too. It just means the other or other, you know, alias means an other. So I'll say like, I'm going to the store with others, so I'd say with alias. I, I, I might say con alias, which means I'm going. I, I minored in Latin when I was in the undergraduate university, by the way. So with others would be con alias, which means I'm going to the store with others. You know, so all it means is the other. You know, that's just that's the literal translation of it. And the other, of course, it could mean uh, quite a lot of things, like all these words. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean extraterrestrial. Uh, there are terrestrial aliens in Lovecraft's works, works too. The, in fact, it's a, a variant evolutionary stream. The Innsmouth mutants who live in the, who are the main focus of the shadow over Innsmouth, they're terrestrial aliens. And uh, he makes an interesting point in that story that there's a little part of, of that kind of evolutionary strain in us too. And so with just a little extra effort, we too can take to the sea and we can follow that evolutionary strain. So that's kind of interesting too. So Lovecraft not, doesn't just have extraterrestrial or transdimensional aliens. He's got uh, terrestrial aliens too. And none of them are too happy to be sharing the earth with us. You know, none of them are too happy about that. You know, right. So. One of the better movies I've seen with the H.P. Lovecraft mythos was called uh, Dagon and it was about a it was about Innsmouth the town and inbreds you know it was essentially about a town where there was a secret society there and the the cult that controlled the place worshipped a fish god but at the very top of this thing the elite there actually had gills and could go into the water and so the protagonist finds out he's related to them that he's royalty he has something special in his blood and when he's made aware of this and he's thrown into this into this pool at the end he literally transforms into something like a like a mermaid type thing but very interesting thing with hp lovecraft there is yeah that, that was actually based on the shadow over innsmouth and uh it was actually the dagon is the main god that the deep ones they call themselves the deep ones the ones that they worship but it's actually a pretty faithful rendition of course they had to add nudity and a little allusions to sex, and then all the violence and the blood and stuff in Dagon. But it's basically a pretty faithful rendition of the Shadow over Innsmouth. By the way, that was Italian. They put it in Italy rather than in Innsmouth. It was actually off the coast in Massachusetts. But in that one, they put it in Italy. And they called it, the name of the town was called Imbroglio. And what's interesting, that's actually Italian for in the mouth. So Innsmouth. You know, so they got a little clever... 
yes, yes. Kind of a little in, inside joke there, you know. But uh, that's actually it was a pretty good movie, you know, if you can stomach all the uh, the violence and everything. But uh, basically, what happened is that in in the story, Captain Obed Marsh, he was a person that did a lot of trading, you know, trading uh, when the Innsmouth was actually a thriving seaport. And what happened? They got in touch with this. A Polynesian cult where they could contact the deep ones who live under the sea. They live in three seas, uh, in, in three cities underneath the seas, and one of them's actually very close to Massachusetts. And they can get in contact with them. And then what happens? They're guaranteed good fishing once they get in contact with them. But the catch is, of course, they, they do intermingling, intermarriage between the female uh, deep ones and then the humans, and then that breeds hybrids. And so that's what happens. You saw the movie, you know, uh, most of them are hybrids, you know, they're combinations of these marriages between the deep ones and human beings. And you're right, the guy discovers that he actually has ancestors that go back to Innsmouth. And so he's actually in the process of transforming. He doesn't know it yet. The girl, the, the high priestess of the cult, she already knows that, you know, she has her sights set on him for right from the beginning, you know, because yes. he's going to be her partner. That was grotesque at the end, though. He got he actually lit himself on fire, and then he went into the water, and then at the end he was swimming off with, with her, but he was all blackened and, and deformed from the fire, and she's actually sw- swimming away with him and stuff. It's really kind of a grotesque ending to it, but it's, it it's, it's, a, pretty good, it's a pretty good movie, pretty good rendition of that story. You're not going to find a lot of happy endings with H.P. Lovecraft, and many of it ends in madness, transformations, all kinds of... Uh, stuff like that. That's why he's he's science fiction, but also there's a deal of great deal of horror. Or death, you know, like the Call of Cthulhu. You were talking about all those people, the the uh, hidden city, the buried city of Ryla. Suddenly, due to another quantum effect, the stars are are right for a minute. It comes up, and all the people that land on the island, they're wiped out immediately. You know, what I mean, and some of them don't even know what's wiping them out. You know, in another book that I've been working on, I study like how Lovecraft is actually. Uh, explores the problems that humans have in perceiving these things. I talk about that a little bit in my book where I talk about the different ways, the way that he describes the entities. There's obviously, uh, 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 there's actually, he's playing around with our notions of reality and then our the problems of perception. But when Cthulhu wipes all those people out, it's not just some big monster with claws wiping people out, but some of them are wiped out in creative ways. One person actually sees another person being swallowed and he's not being killed by a giant monster at all. He's being actually killed by, uh, uh, and this is really weird, he's actually being killed by an uh, obtuse angle that's acting like it's an acute angle. So it's like a geometrical thing happening to him. You know, So uh, depending on how you're looking at Cthulhu, it uh, depends on how flawed or how p- more perfect or how imperfect your perception is. But not everybody sees Cthulhu the same way. You well, know, you mentioned so, Riley, the, the city where he lives. The, and I brought this up before you got on, that the place in the ocean where H.P. Lovecraft pointed out where the sunken city would be corresponds to Point Nemo, the source, the location of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And that's also the place that NASA has designated as the Spacecraft Cemetery. So they drop the old space station there, they drop all their satellites there, and that's the place where those who came from above, um, those who came from the stars, the elder gods or whatever, that's where they came from, they landed at the same spot where the satellites land. So it's an interesting science fiction tie-in with NASA. 
Yeah. Now, do you actually think that there's, do you think that actually happened? I, I mean, I won't be able to verify something. What do you think about that? No, I mean, I just think it's an interesting thing how you have these, um, this designated area by NASA as this is where they say they drop satellites and this is where uh, Lovecraft's place is um, designated as being. I think it's an interesting coincidence. Yeah, he actually gives a latitude and longitude in that sto story for some inexplicable reason, you know, but he tells us exactly where it is in the Pacific Ocean. That is kind of interesting, you know, has anybody actually tried to, I, they don't have it roped off, do they? Can, can, can a person go there? Could I, like, rent a yacht and go out there and just do some exploring, or would, is that partitioned off? Now, that's a really good question. It's between Easter Island and Antarctica. It would be a fascinating trip to take to a lot of people because you have the Jules Verne, you have the NASA, and the H.P. Lovecraft um, references there. I think a lot of people would be interested to see. Supposedly, there's 161 in this spacecraft cemetery, but I just find it interesting, too, the image of a falling satellite would look like a falling star. Um, aliens coming down to Earth, plunging into the ocean, uh, you know, look... I'm surprised somebody hasn't picked up on that. You know, you, you'd think somebody would get out there, you know, get, get a boat out there, you know, do some explorations. They say they chose the place because it's the most rom remote place on Earth uh, from human habitation, and it's least likely that somebody would get hurt from a falling space object. So it's conveniently out of sight, out of mind. But um, now you brought up the characters in the movie uh, Dogon, the, the ones who were the result of this commingling between this other, um, this alien race and humans. And it's very similar, I think, uh, to the biblical accounts of the Nephilim. What do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. You can see it. I don't think it influenced Lovecraft in any appreciable way, you know, but he wasn't a biblical scholar or anything. But there are parallels, you know, you have to be kind of uh, careful when you start making parallels like that because some, sometimes people are reading their pet theories into Lovecraft rather than... Uh, actually seeing what's there you know but uh there there does seem to be a similarity I, ca I can't argue that there's there's actually a parallel though i don't think there's any evidence that lovecraft knew about that i can't think of. I, i'm a pretty good scholar lovecraft i don't think he read about that or commented on it so it doesn't mean he didn't know about it what about though, i mean his um actual sources so for people who are interested um where did lovecraft find uh, um, most of his inspiration yeah well see now that's an interesting question i can refer you to my book on that one too like you notice that all these chapters are kind of constructed the same way if you look at the contents of the book you know i always have like biography and background about each of the authors and then i kind of describe the different types of alien entities and then i finally describe the human kind uh, going back to my main thesis about complementarity but if you look at the biography and background section on page, uh, I guess it's time to do some streaming again if people are paying attention, but on page 17, I've got influences on Lovecraft, and that's actually a pretty uh, uh, accurate and full treatment of the uh, two premises of the Cthulhu mythos and then the inspiration for each of these premises. Now, the ones for the, the, uh, the uh, entities themselves are in the number two section. And I would say one of the biggest things, I talk about a story called uh, The Sea Demons, which he found in Weird Tales, and that kind of actually is kind of like a little uh, a little prefiguring of the, the plot of, uh, of uh, the stories that we're talking about here. But uh, the Book of the Dam, Charles Fort's Book of the Dam, that was published in 1919, that gave Lovecraft a lot of inspiration too. He, he would recommend that to his friends. A lot of people claim that that's actually the direct 
influence on Lovecraft's conceptualization of the Cthulhu mythos. But he deal with this theme of, of uh, terrestrial aliens and hybrids in earlier stories, too, and I talk about that. Like in my uh, chapter on, on uh, Lovecraft's uh, terrestrial aliens, that starts on chapter 46. I talk about uh, one of the, let's see if I got it. Do I talk about that? And, you know, uh, yeah. certainly um, for the rest of this hour, I would like to get into uh, the topic of your own personal experiences with aliens, because uh, that's something else I want to get into. And then we'll also, for the on the third hour, we'll open up for uh, other people to ask questions. But I definitely want to get into that as well. Okay, well, we can do that right now. It's uh, kind of scanty, my experience with aliens. I, I was not taken into a spaceship. I've never had any close encounters of the third kind or fourth kind, what, what, how many ever kind, kinds there are nowadays. I, I don't keep track on it. But I did have an interesting experience up in Clare, Michigan when I was uh, in my first year in college. And uh, we were just graduated from high school. And my brother and his best friend were kind of into the UFO kind of things. Now, we're talking about the 1970s here. We're talking about like... 1972, 1973, and uh, that was just about 10 years or so, maybe 15 years uh, since the inception of the uh, UFO phenomenon. You probably know something about that, you know, like the books like the Frank Edwards' uh, Flying Saucer series, Business. You had George Adamski and Howard Menger, people that claimed to be contactees and stuff. So, and that was where they came out with the Barney and Betty Hill uh, contact things. So all those things were being published for the first time. And there were a lot of these UFO investigation uh, orders or uh, organizations that were starting up. And my brother and his friend were members of one of them. It was called April. I can't recall what April stood for. I think it was Aeronautics something research organization. I forget what they called it. Uh, but in any case, they were members of this thing. And uh, they got a directive from one of the people that was running April that uh, 100 miles from where we lived in Lansing, Michigan, in Clare, Michigan, there were sightings of UFOs. So we decided to go up and investigate one weekend. So the three of us went up, my brother, his friend, and, and me. And it was really funny because my friend was driving one of those original Volkswagen buggies. You know, you know those Volkswagen things that were shaped like bugs? Oh, yeah. And oh, stuff. yeah. And it was hilarious because he had one of those things. And... Uh, Whenever you're on the highway, we, you could drive. When you get up to about 70 miles per hour, the thing shakes. You know, it's not built for highway travel also. It was really comical, but we took this rattle trap of a car up to Clarence, Michigan, and we checked into a real nice hotel. They had a, a hotel Doherty. And uh, then we went out there, and apparently the, the UFOs were out in the swampy area around Herrick Road. And so there were a lot of – they were all paved roads. Some were dirt roads, but there was a whole network of roads around that area and then it was just all swamps off to the sides and woodlands and stuff so it was real creepy at night but we were out there and there was like some a mist on the ground and we were just kind of driving around and then suddenly there was something in front of us and it was really strange it looked like it was some kind of craft but it was very low to the ground now it wasn't a motorcycle it wasn't a bicycle or anything like that it had uh it had two lights and apparently the lights were, I, I don't know if it was facing us or if it was, if it had its rear to us, but the lights looked like headlights. They were kind of like uh, whitish or amber, so they didn't look like 
uh, taillights at all, but it was hovering just off the ground, and we started uh, chasing it. And it would keep, it was really weird because it would keep the same distance between itself and the car, no matter where we speed up or slow down. It would never alter that, so it had complete control about how it could place itself in relation to us, which was kind of surprising. But we were chasing it, and we, you could just, we couldn't really make out what it was. It was just mist all around, and then those two headlight things. And we were chasing it for a while, and then uh, we decided to stop. So my friend stopped his car, and then the thing stopped. It was a, a little bit further ahead of us, but we could see it was like kind of hovering above the ground and it had those two uh, lights. And so then we walked, we got out of the car, and my friend had a flashlight with him. And so he, uh, we walked, we didn't, we couldn't walk up to it. And I was scared, by the way. I was hanging back. You know, they they kind of were more intrepid than I was. I was kind of hanging back. I was looking around nervously too, because there was stuff like supposedly like creatures that lived out in the woods like there was talk about something called a dog man or something like that i kept thinking i'd see some weird creature with glowing eyes looking at me so i was kind of scared so i kind of stayed back by the car and they walked up ahead and then they stopped and then my friend he flashed his light uh two times and then the, the lights of the thing whatever it was flashed off and on twice and then he did it three times. And then he got the corresponding signal, three of them. And then he tried to do something creative. He took his flashlight and uh, he simply just kind of spun it around. And then the thing made a whirring sound, like a, a, a whirring sound. And boy, I was, I was getting really scared by that time, you know. And then we got back in the car and then I told them flat off, I said, I don't want to be out here anymore. I don't know what this thing is. I said, I want you to drive me back to the hotel, and then you guys can come out and spend the rest of the night out in these woods and swamps, you know, hunting this thing down. And so they, they did. They took me back to the hotel. And it was wonderful, by the way. I ordered room service, so it was a great night. But they went back out there, and it was gone. They didn't see anything out there. You know, so that was the end of my UFO experience. They told me later that there were two girls out there that were driving around in their car, and they were investigating the UFOs too, and so they ended up hooking up with the girls. So I guess it had a happy ending. You know, God, but, uh, okay, so they weren't looking for it the first time. That was it. That was it. That was my UFO, my alien experience. So you're not looking for it. You see it. You follow it. It definitely responds in an intelligent way. So it, yeah. there, there's an operator there. Uh, and even right now, is there anything by today's tech? technological standards that you could maybe say could have accomplished that could a drone do what that did and interact in that way oh yeah today today uh you know back then now we're talking about the 70s here 1973 they didn't have drones flying around or any of that kind of technology you know so i don't know you know somebody could have developed i'm not going to say that this was i all i say is it was a ufo meaning unidentified flying objects because i couldn't identify what it was and it was definitely flying it was kind of hovering or flying but it was it could simply fly at good like no matter how fast we went it could fly at that speed and then keep itself between us and it you know so it was definitely an unidentified flying object but whether it was human or uh extraterrestrial i have no way of knowing that and my brother he's a notorious skeptic and the funny thing about him was that whenever he gets in these kind of situations the skepticism all falls away and he's scared shitless just like everybody else right but what happens later on 
the next day he starts explaining it away. And he explained it by saying, well, it's a combination of swamp gas and temperature inversion and then the lights from the highway and stuff. So he had a very complicated explanation that involved three different factors. And I've always agreed with Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes always said that usually the best explanation for something is the simplest. And, and he had to have like three different things all happening coincidentally all at once to explain what this is. But I'm just willing to like say that it was a UFO. I can't explain what it was. And I leave it at that. I, I leave yes. it at that. But I'm it really with you there. Me. I'm with you there. You leave it at that. I'm comfortable with question marks. I'm surprised they're still legal on keyboards these days. But I think it's important to have open questions because if you rush to an answer because you're uh, uncomfortable having unanswered questions, you might blind yourself to better explanations later. And I find these to be really fascinating accounts. I think it's more likely that it's something from here than something from very, very far away. But uh, it, its interaction with you is the most um, interesting part of that story. I've been doing you a lot. Yeah, if I had to guess, if, if I had to guess, I'd say that it was probably something constructed by somebody and they ha had a very good thing going there. But I don't even want to hazard that guess because I really don't know. I'm more scared about the fact that my question mark might disappear. I'm looking at it right now. I, I hope it's not in any, any danger. I like I, the question mark. I know. Well, Lately, it just seems like um, asking questions is becoming a very uh, problematic thing for social media. And I think we need to have these, uh, the ability to at least, you know, ask questions of the official explanations. And it's okay to be certainly wrong. And I'm, well, I'm always you know, welcome to be debunked on anything. Uh, what's this about Dogman? Is that a variant of a werewolf? Uh, yeah, I've heard my friend has got into investigation of paranormal things, and he said there's something in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan called the Dog Man. I would imagine it's like some kind of hybrid between a canine or a human. I'm not sure, but he would go and investigate. You know, he stayed with it uh, as he grew up. You know, he had a website called Paranormal Nomad, and he would investigate all sorts of haunted houses and stuff like that. I kind of lost touch with all that kind of stuff. I think the biggest danger what you're talking about is like – uh, labeling things you don't agree with or things that you haven't done any research on as being misinformation. Like, who determines whether it's misinformation or not? You know, information, yeah, but some there isn't a committee that says, this is misinformation here, while this, on the other hand, is the truth. You know, we should be able to talk about those things, and we should be able to reach some kind of uh, at least if we're going to disagree about something, it's fine. So I disagree about this kind of information. You disagree about that kind of information. But we shouldn't be labeling one person's set of information, misinformation, and then require everybody else to believe that. I think that that is not good for our society. I don't think that's good at all. Yeah, same here. Do you want me to talk about this supernatural thing too? Yeah, I did actually. I did want to go into that as well because I think these things overlap. And one of my things about my favorite things about H.P. Lovecraft is that he he merged the two. He he delved into the supernatural. He delved into uh, aliens, but with these other explanations for it. But uh, in some of his stories, like the horror at Red Hook, there was actually this underground fraternity that had some connection to mankind's hidden past. And I always find that to be one of the most um, interesting themes about H.P. Lovecraft, you know, this idea that the truth is there, it's just been, you know, buried. Uh, so, yes. In all of the stories like that, like if you read like The Shadow Out of Time, 
that he's talking about the great race there. They came to the planet like uh, actually about a hundred million years. Uh, actually, uh, before that, uh, they came to Earth about a hundred billion years ago. Uh, well, the elder things did that. The great race came around the, uh, there's like three different ones, but the great race came about 150 million years ago. And what's interesting in these stories, that he doesn't actually give you the entities directly. He's very subtle. People accuse Lovecraft of not being subtle, but he's very subtle. What happens is that uh, a person has a weird experience, and then he thinks it's like some kind of psychological experience where he's actually interacting with a great race back in you know, 150 million years ago, and he's actually transcribing documents for him, but he thinks it's all psychological aberration, but then later on, he goes on an expedition with some people, and he finds evidence about their city, but it's always after the fact, like in these stories, uh, he'll have an experience like that, but then when he actually goes to the city, whatever happened there, happened a long time ago, and then he has to kind of piece together uh, the reality of it, but that happens constantly in Lovecraft. Like he'll take us to some subterranean place or some buried city somewhere, and then uh, we don't really see anything. We get we get hints and, and bits and pieces of things, but we don't really see anything directly. You know, so a lot of people think that his monsters are like very obvious and stuff like that, but they're not. He handles these themes uh, very very subtly. And in that story you mentioned, you're right. They're down under there. It's actually considered one of the best occult detective stories ever written. But they're down under there. There's an Italian police officer named Thomas Malone. And he's investigating Robert Sudom in the horror at Red Hulk cultist. And he goes down there too, you know, so he has the experience under there. By the way, if you want to read another one of those stories, the one that actually inspired that and that Lovecraft uses the basis for that story is called The Rats in the Walls. And that was written like a few years before the horror at Red Hook. So if you want to look that up sometime, it's got the same kind of theme, you know, where they go to subterranean realms and then they discover uh, uh, evidence of other civilizations and cultures that were definitely, in, in that case, in the Rats and the Walls, it's a cannibalistic cult. But none of them are still surviving. You know, they just find bones and stuff like that. So you might want to uh, take a look at that. The Rats and the Walls is considered one of his finest stories because it can be interpreted entirely in psychological terms, not in terms of supernatural or magical. So right. you might want to try that one. Okay, okay, you want me to do the uh, the, uh, the ghost experience? Yeah, please. Let's go over that, and then we'll address the audience questions after. That's great. The ghost experience, now, you notice my experiences are not conventional because I leave the interpretation up to what you want to do, like with the UFO one. You know, I can't really say for sure what that was. This one is the same kind of situation here. We used to go up to this cottage. It was at Lake 13, and uh, it belonged to my grandparents, and it was a great cottage. You know, it was one of those all-wood kind of cottages, and it was shaded by, like, um, uh, weeping willow trees and stuff. It had a beach beside it, and then this kind of wonderful lake in front. And at night, it would get, there was no streetlights out there. And at night, it would get really fearfully dark there. And so uh, at nighttime, we would just be sleeping there. And it's, it was like basically one main room. And then there was a bathroom. And then there were two bedrooms. And the bedrooms looked out on the main room. And now at nighttime, when we went to bed, it, it was really dark out there. There was one of those old-fashioned stoves to provide heat and a little light in one corner. It had kind of an orangey glow off to the side, you know, but it was really dark in that room. 
And uh, for some reason, I always slept in this one bedroom. My, my parents would go up. I had my brother, me, and then the mom and dad. And I would always sleep in my dad's room for some reason. He would sleep in the bed, uh, on the far bed, and then I would sleep in a bed that was very real close to the wall. And all I had to do was like go to the foot of the bed, and I could look out into the, the, that living room, that big room. My mom would sleep on the sofa for some reason. And so she'd be out in that room sleeping on the sofa, and then there was a rocking chair right next to where she was. And then the other bedroom, there was a bedroom that was right next to mine that looked out, but from a different perspective. My brother always slept in that room, and that's the way we always slept, you know. So it was weird. Like every night that I was out there, I would wake up automatically around midnight or so, just a little bit after midnight sometimes. And I always knew that uh, what was going to happen. And what I'd do is I'd go to the foot of the bed and I'd look out. And I was looking out in the room here. And it's real dark, right? I could just see like a dim blur of my mom. She would wear this like white house coat with the covers over. And so I could just see that dim blur on the sofa. And I would see some kind of thing step out on my mom. And what it was was it was kind of a dark, dusky kind of thing. I could see through it. So I could see the room behind it. But it was kind of a grayish, dusky kind of thing. And uh, it had a real bright white outline around it for some reason, like it, like some child had traced outline around. And it would come out of her body. It would sit in that rocking chair, and then it would rock. It would just rock. And I would watch that thing rocking. And then eventually, it became aware of the fact that I was watching it. And so it would get up, and then it would walk toward where I was looking. You know, if, in my room, and it would come toward me, and it would come and. The closer it got, I got scared because it had my mother's face. Now I could see through the face; I could see the dark wall behind it. So it was kind of, kind of a murky kind of a face. But it had the most evil smile on its face. I'd never seen it look like that on my mother's face in my entire life. Like it wasn't my mother; it was like some kind of evil entity or something. And it would walk toward me, and then once it got to the middle of the room, it would disappear. And then it would be back in that rocking chair again. And it would do the same thing over again as long as I wanted to watch it. It would just get up and walk toward me. And it would put its arms out like it was uh, beckoning for me to come out to it or something. And it used to just give me chills up and down my spine. But this time I had a little bit more backbone than I did with the UFO experience. I got up one time. And I could swear my head, hair was probably standing on edge. I felt chills running down. I was shaking. I was determined to walk out there and meet that thing. And I did exactly that. I walked out, and as I got closer to her, the smile looked even more evil, and I was just terrified, but I, I just kept walking. And then once I got close to her, it disappeared entirely. And then it was back in the rocking chair, and I was walking toward the rocking chair, and then it slowly vanished from the rocking chair. And then finally, when I went to the rocking chair, I just put my hand out and touched it, and then it stopped rocking. So that was my direct encounter with that. Now, I did an experiment with the next night. I said, if this thing is really walking toward my room, then if I go in my, switch beds with my brother and I go into his room and, uh, and he's in my bed, he would sleep like a log. He would never wake up. So I knew that he didn't have to worry about waking up and seeing it. But this perspective was a little different. I, I reasoned this way. I said, if it's actually walking toward my room and trying to interact with me, I should see it in kind of a side view because it would be walking more toward my room than toward me, right, if I'm in a different room. And so that was my logic for that. So 
I was sleeping in his bed, and the same thing happened. I woke up at night at the usual time. I was wide awake, and then I saw it. The figure was sitting in the rocking chair. It was rocking. And then what was really weird is it started walking toward the room, my former room, and I could see it from the side view, which I don't know what to make of that at all. Okay, you know, I, I, okay. So it was, uh, I, it was going to the first room where you were, and you're in the yeah. second room watching, and it still repeats the same exact pattern. That's exactly what it did. I, I can't account for it. And some people have asked me when I've told the story, they said, did you ever tell your mom? And I said, no, I'm not going to tell my mom a story like that. You know, it would probably scare her. She'd probably think it was like some her soul coming out of her body or an astral body or something. And she'd probably start be thinking about death or worrying about it. There's no way I was going to ever mention that to my mom. So I never told her, but I told my brother about it. I never told her anything about this. But again, what is that? Was she astral traveling? Uh, was I seeing an astral body? Was I seeing like some kind of demonic entity that merged with her? I really don't know what. So I'm leaving that one up to interpretation too. Okay. I see some comments here. Uh, commenter Infinite Muse says, freaky story. Uh, Bad Flatitude says, I heard the devil's throne is actually a rocking chair. Never heard that one. Um, no. <laughs> I, I have a question here for you. Someone says, uh, does the author have an opinion on the book Necronomicon by Simon? Yeah, if you're actually interested in that topic, like Aliens, Robots, and Virtual Reality Idols is my second book. My first one is a book called H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition. And what I do is in that book, I uh, answer all the questions you could possibly want to know about Lovecraft's connection with, uh, with Western magic. And in that book, I have two chapters where I talk about the Necronomicons. One of them, I look at all the Necronomicons that I call spurious ne Necronomicons. Ones that are actually fictitious or actually contrived documents. And then the chapter following that one is based on the Simon Necronomicon. So anything you want to know about any of those Necronomicons, including the Simon one and how it connects to Lovecraft's, uh, his themes, his stories, and his fiction – is all in that book, you know. So I can only advise a person to pick up a copy. You couldn't do any better than that. Sure. Uh, let, like while we're on this topic, let me get everybody on the same page here. If you go to darkmatter.radio, I have a blog post with uh, today's thumbnail for the, today's discussion. It has a link to your your book that we're discussing today: Aliens, Robots, and Virtual Reality Idols. But um, I'll put a link there for H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical uh, Connection and any other books that tradition, I should put on that list. Tradition. Black Magical Tradition. And any other books do you think I should put on that list? Yeah, there? You know you know the people people can do? Like if they go to Google, Google knows me now. Google's a good friend of mine. Like if you if I say, hey, Google, who is John L. Stedman? You have to use the L. Then it'll, it'll tell you who John L. Stedman is. But if you just go to Google and type John L. Stedman, all the books are there, you know. They, they sell them on Amazon. They sell them. And you can get that first one. The first one was published in 2015, so you can get that for a pretty uh, reasonable price, a, a lower price. This first, the second one, for some reason, is real pricey. You know, I think in this day, in this period of COVID-19 and people having to be careful with their money because a lot of people lost their jobs, uh, my my second book here is a real luxury item, say, at $25.95. You know, but that first one, you can pick that up for uh, next to nothing because it's been out for five years. That that was a big seller, by the way. My, my second one's been a little sluggish. 
you know, because of this economy. And, you know, I mean, 2020 was not the greatest year in the world. I think we can all agree on that. Right. But the, know, so, the, the black yeah. magic thing with H.P. Lovecraft, that, that has to be compelling because for people who haven't read Lovecraft, many of his books have to do with a character coming across a book of like uh, forbidden magic, black magic. Necronomicon is one of the more famous ones depicted in movies where it's sort of a uh, disputed. Is this a real book? Is it not? But the idea is that there may be some real basis for the magic as presented in H.P. Lovecraft's books. Yeah, why answer all that question, all the rest of the all the questions you could possibly answer, like whether Lovecraft believed in magic or not, whether he was actually a magical practitioner himself, whether he had any connection with Aleister Crowley. You know, Peter Lavanda and the Dark Lord posits some kind of like psychic connection between Lovecraft and then his uh, dark entities in uh, uh, Nightside of Eden, the Quiloptic entities. All that's discussed in my book. Like in the first part I talk about, I give a brief biography, I, I give a brief description of what magic is, the different types of magic, and then I tell you exactly what Lovecraft knew and and didn't know about magic, and then we explore those Necronomicons, and then finally I have a chapter where I talk about the great old ones, the target entities, and then after that, what the book turns into, it's an analysis of Lovecraft's influences or connections with all the major black magical systems in the Western world. And I look at his connection with the voodoo religion. I look at his connection with the Wiccan religion. They called it witchcraft back then when, when he was right. I look at it with Kenneth Grant's Typhonian magical tradition. I look at it with the Church of Satan. A lot of people don't know, but Anton LaVey, the uh, founded the Church of T Satan, actually has a chapter in his book, The Satanic Rites, which is called The Metaphysics of Lovecraft, where he actually adapts Lovecrafting themes and concepts in two rituals that he has in that book. You know, So LaVey, Anton LaVey, and early Satanism was very connected to Lovecraft, so I've got a chapter on that. And then finally, Chaos Magic and Lovecraft's influence on the Chaos Magicians. Now, the interesting thing is the influence is usually from Lovecraft to these magical cults. It's not vice versa because Lovecraft was a notorious, uh, I was going to say racist. He was that too, by the way. But he was a notorious atheist. He didn't believe in magic or deities or entities like that. You know, So for him, it was just a kind of like fictional construct. But once you read that book, you'll understand everything that you could possibly want to know and probably more than you'd want to know about that particular topic. And if you notice, like you, you've been reading my book here, The Aliens and Robots. I pack a lot of information into these books, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the price is nothing. I mean, it's worth it. Uh, uh, I, I read Kindle, but uh, it's dense, it's scholarly, and you're making a lot of very, very interesting connections. And we talk about many of these topics anyway. It's, it's hard not to um, you know, basically get really um, into the rabbit trail with some of these things. Um, I consider it pricey. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a cheapskate, okay? I'm a cheapskate. My daughter's like that, too. If we can get a deal, we'll get a deal. So, you know, I was really happy with the first book because Amazon started playing around with the price. And there were some times where Amazon had that price down to five or six bucks. You can bet I replenish my stock of these things because sometimes I go to – I haven't been to a book sign in a long time because of the COVID thing. But I like to replenish my stock. But that's actually a better bargain than buying it. I get 50% off if I buy it from Red Wheel. But I'll buy it from Amazon for four or five bucks. You know, So Amazon so far has been keeping the price of this book fairly consistent you know so it's actually i i can't afford my own book 
you know, so I'm waiting for Amazon to start having some fun and then I'll buy some more copies. But right now it's even too pricey for me, you know, so I'll understand if people don't have the money for, I mean, you got, you got to do what you got to do. You know, I think buying food is more important than buying, spending twenty five ninety five. I know you say it's worth it, you know, but I don't, in these days, I'm not trying to, you know, talk people out of buying it, but you know, it's a, it's a luxury item. I view it as a luxury item. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, the digital book, right? It's it's a convenience to be able to order it that way. I'd prefer to have the paperback. I'd prefer to have it signed even. I miss used bookstores where if I was low on cash, I could trade in some old books. Don't have that much anymore. But um, another book you brought up, let's see, you have the the one, The Black Magical Tradition. Uh, we yeah, have, those are the only two that I've written. I've finished the third one. And before I send that to one of these publishers, I want to see how the sales are. You know, once you get... At the level that I've gotten to, you know, you you keep your eye on the sales, you know, and stuff like that. And sales will determine whether or not they'll probably do the second, the third book. The third book's already written, and that's a study of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's uh, concept of the magical persona. I mentioned in here when I look at Lovecraft's uh, uh, Homo Sapiens Plus, I call them. I look at the magical practitioners and the witches. That's actually a very deep, involved study of Lovecraft's magical persona, and um, the subtitle is uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, M.R. James, and the Evolution of an Occult Archetype. And what I do in that book is I show how Lovecraft's magical persona, meaning uh, plural, and they, he has magical persona in uh, five or six stories, how they're based on uh, Poe's works, Hawthorne's works, and M.R. James' works. So he actually borrowed from them, and a lot of the stories are patterned on these writers. And then after I... That I, in part two, I look at Lovecraft's things, and I give you in-depth analysis of all the different magical things, and I look at all of Lovecraft's main purposes for writing. And his main purposes for writing are the exploration of the cosmic indifferentism, the nature of reality, the problems of human perception, and what it means to be a human. So I look at how he explores those four topics in these individual stories, and then I do an in-depth study of the actual magical systems that Lovecraft devises, and then how it relates to the other writers. In the third part, I look at about 30 Cthulhu Mythos writers who were inspired by Lovecraft. So I look, I take it from his predecessors to him, and then to the post-Lovecraftian magical persona. And then I've got a nice chapter on Ray Bradbury. He's another one of my favorite authors, and I didn't deal with him in the second book here, but I deal with him in a final chapter where I show how Ray Bradbury has two very good stories about magical practitioners, and I argue that these two were influenced by Lovecraft. So that's a pretty cool chapter, too. You know, So that's my next book. It's all written. It's all ready to go. But who's going to publish it will determine on how the sales are on the second book right now i'm working on my fourth book okay so I'm, I'm a retired i'm a retired guy you know so i've got i don't teach anymore I used to be a college professor i don't teach anymore and so i got plenty of time to do all this stuff well you have a lot of listeners right now who are definitely interested in what you're writing about and uh, many of the uh, points that you're raising here uh, oh can are, i make a point about yeah. the signings by the way if anybody wants if anybody buys one of these books and they want to uh me to sign a copy all they have to do is send it to me i'll be glad to sign i have on my website at the first page of it where i introduce myself i have my email 
address in or my email, uh, they can feel free to just use that email address and contact me. And uh, what I'll do is I'll tell them a post office box where they can send the book, like they, they buy it and then they can send it to me. I'll be glad to sign it and write any kind of thing that they'd like me to write in there. And then I'll be glad to send it back if they, as long as they provide, you know, postage, but that's no problem. So if anybody wants that, you mentioned yourself that you like uh, books signed, you know, there's a co- some of my copies because I did a lot of book signs for that first one. Some signed ones are floating around out there, but anybody buys any of these books, any of these two books here, I'll, I'll be glad to sign it and, and send it right back to you, you know, if anybody wants to do that. Okay, I have a couple of other uh, questions from people in the audience here. Uh, so, uh, Bad Flatitude asks, uh, what does he think about authors like Robert Heinlein or Arthur C. Clarke? Let's go with Robert Heinlein. Yeah, uh, he's got a great name, by the by the way. Is is bad flatulent? Is that what it is? Uh, uh, those so. are uh, the three. Those two writers are like as with they're like hard science fiction writers, and they're okay. They're they're okay. You know, I don't. Uh, I haven't delved into them very very heavily, but they're uh, definitely classic writers. You know, there's no question about that. You know, but they don't quite fit. You know, their kinds of things that they write about don't quite fit, you know, the thesis in my book, you know, so I didn't include them at all in it, you know. Well, what specifically does he want to know about these these guys? I'll see if I can get anything more specific. And his name was Bad uh, Flatitude. Um, I believe it's Flatitude. A, yeah, uh, it's a reference to uh, the, the, the flat earth theory, I'm pretty sure, which is... Oh, Flatitude. Now, um, I was thinking flatulence for some reason. Okay, now there's another author he mentioned, um, let's see, Robert Anton Wilson who, um, science fiction, writes more conspiratorial-themed books. But, um, yeah, he has a question here. He says, what are your thoughts on Robert Anton Wilson? Well, the, all these people are really great writers. You know, they don't they don't attract me as much as the writers that I've written about here. Because I, I like a lot, a lot of these science fiction writers. They're good, you know, but they're not, uh, uh, they're not dark enough for me, if, if that makes any sense. You know, they're just... Not dark enough. All these writers that I've actually studied are kind of very dark writers. And, and these other ones are good. You know, they've got ideas in them, certainly. Ideas, and they've got good, solid plots and stuff. But they they haven't really grabbed my fancy or my fascination the way that the ones I write about are. Yeah. But I don't mean to demean them in any way. You know, they just, you know, doesn't... It's like, you know, like the... the, uh, the um, 2001 a space odyssey you know that that one you know that that book i mean that book is good and the movie was good too and stuff stanley kubrick course did a good job with the movie but here we're talking about a little bit more conventional ideas of uh, you know they're on spaceships they're going out there and they're usually a little bit too human-centric for me which is kind of hard to define i guess human-centric means that they're concerned a lot with the uh, what human beings are doing in the cosmos and in the galaxy, but uh, I'm not so concerned with that because uh, I find that human beings tend to carry their human centrism with them. They try and view human beings like being the center of everything, and so they impose human characteristics and even human uh, human looks, human ways of thinking onto extraterrestrial cultures and stuff like that. And that that just doesn't seize my fancy i'm not just a fan of the kind of like spaceship going off and trying to discover the origins of humankind because quite quite frankly humankind 
I kind of agree with Lovecraft on that. Humankind is kind of insignificant in terms of the cosmos as a whole, you know. So for us to impose our views, like in the old days, they used to think, of course, that everything revolved around the earth. Everything revolved around the earth, the sun and everything. Man was at the center of the universe. But then it was really demoralizing to a lot of people when they found out that we're just a little teeny planet and we're orbiting the sun and stuff so i i don't like the human centric so much i get you there they're and good you know I, I like anything that i can read about they'll give me information about things that i can't see in the real in the so-called normal life why i really hate are like movies or books that just deal with supposedly uh just human situations like romance or people falling in love or crime or or uh you know, right, exactly. uh, adventure movies or something. Oh. I don't like those kind. You know, I like it has to be weird. It has to be a kind of weirdness where we're not really sure what it is that we're in the presence of. Right. That kind of it, stuff. It's that That's area that has always been covered by Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, X-Files, uh, the, the real unexplored. And I think Lovecraft, one of his quotes was about... Uh, the greatest fear is the fear of the unknown. And that's one of the things yeah. that he was always going into, the unknown. And, yeah, I don't really care for the uh, typical space opera stuff. And I've always been interested in Lovecraft and many of these other writers who, like, you know, William Gibson, Lovecraft, Philip K. Dick. And you find that these authors and their short stories seem to have inspired most of the movies that we see. So if you've seen Terminator, RoboCop, I mean, you can pretty much point to just a handful of minds that those oh, ideas... Oh, yeah, they're all heavily influenced. But see, these movies that you're talking about, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Like a Star Wars thing, too, you know. I mean, it's all human-centric. Like, here they are, they got their lightsabers, or they got blasters and stuff. Here they, they're going out, and they're all, they all look human. You know, they, they throw in a couple monsters and stuff like that, but nothing really gets my imagination really engage the way that Lovecraft or the way that these other writers do. And then the robot, look at the robots. They're real simple. They're kind of funny. You know, they see 3PO and the, uh, and the R2 detour. They're comical and stuff like that, but they're always comical from a human standpoint. And it, it, that seems kind of like a little juvenile to me, you know, I mean, it's fun. It's fun and stuff, but I get kind of bored with that kind of stuff after a while. You know, it's like just con continuous special effects and stuff like that. I find myself not really caring that much about those characters that much. I mean, like, same thing with the Avengers movies. The Avengers movies have been great. You know, the uh, the Infinity Wars and what was the other one where everybody came back? I forget what that one was called and stuff like that. But they end up, for me, just a bunch of special effects, basically. And I could care less. Like, one, once I watch these movies or read some of these books, I could care less where anybody lives or dies in the movie. You know, the characters are, like, two-dimensional for me, you know. So my imagination and my deeper faculties aren't engaged. But with the writers I deal with in this book, uh, I'm fully engaged with what yes. I'm reading. That's the and case nobody with gets even close to that, you know, when, when they make a movie. Right, and that's definitely the case with H.P. Lovecraft. I was very much, uh, I read all of his books, you know, word for word, I, I, probably more than once, his um, stories. And I was always watching, you know, many of the movies with Lovecraft. And what distinguishes Lovecraft's horror from bad or regular horror movies is Lovecraft never shows you the monster. It's not about some creepy monster. You never see it. It's always... Um, a psychological horror, which I think is far more potent, powerful, and it, it makes the other stuff cartoonish and seem childish. Well, you know, it's interesting, though. He does show the monster sometime, and when he does, 
uh, actually a friend of mine, his name's Graham Harmon. He got a book published by Zero Two called uh, uh, We're, uh, Lovecraft in Philosophy. And uh, what he does is he actually talks about when Lovecraft actually does show the monsters. And like in the Dunwich Horror, he shows uh, Wilbur Whaley's body. And Wilbur Whaley is a hybrid between Yog sothoth and a human woman. And it's really a, a tetralogically fabulous kind of a sight, as Lovecraft describes. But, you know, it's interesting about that description. Uh, that and then Cthulhu, too. Uh, this uh, professor here, uh, Graham Harmon, he argues that uh, Lovecraft... Uh, is playing with our human perceptions when he presents these things, and he calls it two approaches. One's called the kind of like the, uh, the it's kind of like the Picasso, the Picasso approach, where it gives you information overload. He heaps all these things on, and it's in such a way where the human mind can't really process what they're seeing, and it shuts down. Now, I talk about that a little bit in my chapter on the extraterrestrial entities. I talk about Harmon's view, but uh, what happens, he's got like the... Uh, the uh, the Picasso effect where it, it, he overloads you with so many things assaulting your sensation. And I describe like his description of the great race and uh, how it forces your mind to uh, actually imagine something that looks like that actually uh, functioning in, in the, you know, in the world. And it shuts down our perception. And the same thing, although the other approach he does, is actually that that would be the kind of like horizontal, but then he's got like the vertical approach to perception, where like with Cthulhu, I mentioned this before, where the people that are being actually killed by Cthulhu, they all see different things. One sees a giant mountain walking, another one sees a giant monster with claws, and one sees that that weird obtuse angle that's behaving as though it's a, a an, a, 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 an acute angle, you know, so. Everybody that's looking at Cthulhu is seeing him different as filtered through their own perceptual mechanism. So that is actually the vertical approach, he calls it, as opposed to the horizontal or the Picasso approach. And so Lovecraft here in his work is actually playing with our perceptions. And he's challenging our perceptions. And he's arguing that human perception is limited. And we're really not sure what these things are. You know that he's actually presenting to us, so it's very sophisticated, and you can see how hard that would be to film. Because when they film it, they gotta get us down to something that we can see, something that can be filmed. And once you start doing that, the human centric kind of creeps in there, and then pretty soon you got like a standard horror movie rather than a, a very philosophically oriented and speculative uh, work of art. Yes, very well put. Uh, Lovecraft does show the monsters, but not in the way that you could possibly uh, comprehend in the way that he wrote them. It's just, it's, it's a, an impossible challenge, and that's the nature of his short stories. So, uh, John, we're going to take a short break here. We'll be back in three minutes for the final hour, and we'll talk about, okay. uh, well, whatever else is on your mind. We'll go through some... Well, I like answering these questions. You know, these questions are good. People got some really good questions. Absolutely. Okay, so we'll be back in about just uh, three minutes. If anyone here wants to share the stream and put your comments in the chat. All right, thank you. We'll be right back. All right, I'll be right here. Did you know there are laws that protect the health and safety rights of agriculture workers? 
And if you or a loved one is dealing with coronavirus, your rights may include required details about your job and pay, payment at the proper rate for every hour you work, safe transportation, and safe and clean housing. Okay, so we're back. This is Midnight in the Desert, February 6, 2020. We're here with John L. Stedman to discuss his latest book, Aliens, Robots, and Virtual Reality Idols. And I'll make sure that he gives you a, a web link so you can find his book. He also said he's very searchable on Google and Amazon. You can find both his books there. So, uh, John, are you here with us now? Can you hear me okay? I'm here. Excellent. So uh, we're going to go ahead and continue with what we were just discussing, and we're going to be addressing questions from people who are uh, in the audience here, the chatters. So let me see if we have anybody. Okay. Um, again, we were talking about H.P. Lovecraft, William Gibson. We're talking about Isaac Asimov. Um, now, anytime I mention a movie, we have to point out that the movies are never as good as the books, but are there any movies based on these authors you recommend? You've uh, just you've been writing about that you would recommend? Oh, gee, this, that's a tough one. Uh, Dagon, I actually own a copy of that movie. And I, I thought that was pretty good. You know, I mean, they bl blay it up and sexed it up a little bit, but I thought it was pretty good. Uh, let me think here for a minute. Uh, oh, yeah, there, there's one actually. It's kind of funny, but it's not bad. It's not bad. It's a recent one. Uh, the, col the Color Out of Space. It's got... Uh, Nicholas Cage in it, and uh, it's based on the story The Color Out of Space that Lovecraft wrote. And that, that I thought was pretty good. I mean, they made some notable changes to it, but it kind of captures a little bit of the flavor of, of that story. And let me think of some older ones. Uh, I enjoyed, some of them are kind of campy. Like, I like the Dunwich Horror with, uh, it was made like back in the 70s, but that one's kind of funny. It's got like a lot of 70s kind of hippie, hippie kind of stuff in it. The great old ones are kind of like a, basically a com commune of hippies, you know. It's But it's kind of funny, you know. It's, it's dated, but it's kind of funny. Um, let's see, what was that? That There was one that, oh, the uh, one I thought was real nice. It was one of those Roger Corman, uh, Edgar Allan Poe movies. Remember those in the 60s? Uh, Roger Corman, it was uh, Samuel Arkoff and Nicholson, they put together these movies, and uh, they were based on the, the works of Edgar Allan Poe. They did like The Fall of the House of Usher, they did The Pit and the Pendulum, and one of them they called The Haunted Palace, and uh, it was titled after uh, Edgar Allan Poe's short uh, poem, The Haunted Palace, but it's actually a, a version of Lovecraft's uh, uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is actually uh, actually a novel-length story they wrote, and uh, uh, that one I thought was pretty good. It's a very early movie, you know. We're talking about the '60s here, and back then they couldn't really sell a movie based on Lovecraft because he wasn't so well known. Like in the '60s and '70s, he was kind of like known to only a select group of people, and so they had to have the Poe name. You know, that's why they called it the Haunted Palace. But if you look at it, it says in the credits it's based on that story. But that's pretty good. It's, it's one of those kind of hammy, kind of Vincent Price, 
kind of movies, but they do a fairly good job of that too. So I guess I could recommend those movies here. But I guess the best of the current ones are The Color Out of Space, and then and that's a recent movie. That's 2020, I think. 2020 or 2021. And then Dagon would be the two that I'd recommend. As for Asmuth, he hasn't fared very well, I, I don't think, when it, when it comes to uh, his his things. You know, they really popularize him to such a point where the, the novels lose all their flavor. And sometimes they kind of mess them up. Like they did uh, a filming of his favorite story, The Bicentennial Man. Uh, Robin Williams was in that. But they turned it into a comedy, basically. It was a very serious story about a robot that wants to be a man, a person, and so he has all the par- his parts replaced, and he has to wait until the end to have his brain replaced, his positron brain brain replaced. But he finds out that if he transforms entirely into a human being with organic tissue, that it's going to shorten his life. And but he's willing to do it anyway. He wants to be a human so bad he's willing to shorten his life, and oh. then he ages after he has all the operations but they turn that into kind of a silly comedy version so and then they made movies like i robot with uh, will smith and stuff like that and these are kind of like popularizations of asmus themes so I, I i won't really want to recommend any of those i mean the special effects are great but i won't recommend any of those gibson uh, nobody's really captured gibson too well i guess we'd have to say the matrix is probably based on on gibson but they actually did do one, Johnny Mnemonic. I don't know if you know about that movie. Keanu Reeves was in it. Yes, yes. It came, it was, came around in the 90s or so. That was based on a short story, uh, the, uh, on a short story with the same name. And that wasn't bad. You know, they had to flesh it out a little bit, but that wasn't bad. Now, that's interesting about Bicentennial Man. I remember that film uh, with Robin Williams. But, yeah, it's about a basically a robot becoming more human and having to deal with human limitations. And uh, recently on Netflix, there's a one called From Beyond, and it's about this new Earth that appears, but to go there, you have to give up your carbon footprint. So essentially, you have your consciousness put into a robot. So you have to, you have to give up that, but then you trade it in for immortality. So it's kind of the reverse. Now that's interesting. That's a real liberal interpretation of Lovecraft. I read that story, and it's true they go to some kind of alternate reality or something like that, but it's nothing like the Lovecraft story. That was a very short, short story, right? By the way, that was turned into a pretty effective horror movie back in the 60s. I think it was called From Be. I forget what it was called. I don't know if that was called From Beyond also, but this one you're talking about is a relatively new one, isn't it? It's a relatively new one, but I just it's an interesting theme uh, within science fiction in general, the idea of consciousness being uploaded. But in this new one, they tied it in, I think it's funny, to the global warming thing, where it's like you could sacrifice your carbon, your body, and in exchange, you get immortality in this better world. But they're going to keep it green up there, so none of you polluters get to go. It, you know, it's really? it's a kind of an interesting little subtext. Yeah, so no carbon footprint at all, and I assume that it's a permanent transfer. You know, once you do it, you can't go back. And look, this isn't a comedy, this movie. It's called From Beyond, but they actually have their brain taken out and put into the robot's oh. body, which I think is kind of funny in itself, you know, having your brain removed. It's like you'd have to, to go along with such a thing. But they literally do that, and they put it into a robot body. But anyway, this is a topic I want to get into as well, which is uh, transhumanism and this intersection of where the robot meets human and vice versa. 
Yeah, now see, that's kind of interesting there because I'm not so sure. These are things I like to think about, but I'm thinking about that for a minute, like putting a human brain inside the body of a robot. And then the brain the brain apparently is is, uh, is taking care of the body. It's thinking for that body. But I, I wonder, you know, if that, that kind of subtly transforms the definition of what it means to be a human. Uh, uh, Gibson actually talks about that a little bit in his peripheral series because what happens in that one, they've got these things. They're like avatars, like in the movie Avatar, where uh, in the 22nd century they create these bodies. And you can kind of rent these bodies if you've got things to do. And people from the 21st century that are kind of connected to them can actually visit the 22nd century by uh, uploading their consciousness not their brains now they use it you they have a device for doing it but they upload their consciousness into the bodies they're prepared for them and these are basically humanoid or humaniform bodies and stuff like that but uh it's interesting gibson offers us a little speculation about once this kind of thing happens uh he calls it disanthropomorphic i can't pronounce it you know what i mean right but he, right he, he makes it. He, he makes a little speculation about uh, once you actually get inside one of these bodies, how much of the residual uh, conscience of the thing is actually merges with your own or is connected to your own, and have you subtly redefined what that is and then what you are too? You know, so are you the same person in that body as you were in your human body? And these are kind of fascinating kind of questions. To, uh, to think about there so is that what they do in this book this uh, movie you're talking about do they actually explore like uh, whether that robot is actually what, what are the robots well, what do they well, consider it, the robots humans or robots that, that's a good question and it's left unanswered but they the, and the whole thing was it's earth 2 and you can't go there unless you become human 2.0 so the idea was it was a, uh, a basically your ticket up there was adopting this transhuman new body and the whole thing was sacrificing your humanity more or less so apparently from the user's perspective it feels even more real than your human body it's a real uh, physically actually feel it but it's all simulation so uh, the movie just raises some interesting questions but it kind of plays into this idea that we are destroying the world uh, just being what we are and when we uh, establish a new world we have to leave behind our bad habits like burning fossil fuels and stuff yeah i wonder if we could do that you know that's kind of an interesting question you know you put the human brain in a thing first of all i would wonder uh if there are any changes to that once that brain's in that body if there are some kind of subtle changes that might redefine humanity altogether or perhaps the brain the human brain is so powerful or so aggressive we could say that maybe that will alter i mean it's it's, I'm not sure what would happen there, but what happens in the story anyhow? Like once they get there, do they actually men, uh, end up like, messing things up once they do that? Or do they actually adopt to the mores of that culture? And then if so, are they human beings anymore or are they something else? Yeah, exactly. See, I, I would say, I mean, the movie doesn't, it leaves it open. But I mean, I think it, it's kind of one of these areas where, and it's Netflix. And I find that a lot of science fiction in Netflix is going along with the uh, dominant narratives of the day, just kind of selling it to you a different way. And I think that's just a movie that's science fiction merged with uh, environmentalism or environmental catastrophism. Like 
Climate fiction is a very popular genre these days where the new enemy is the climate or uh, man's relationship to the earth. So anyway, the movie doesn't really go that far. It's somewhat superficial, but I did find the treatment of the subject interesting. The idea of uh, transhuman transformation and at what point, of course, yeah, are you still... Well, that that part I find fascinating, you know, but just the theme of, you know, doing that and being like a a little morality tale like we've got to be nicer to Mother Earth and we've got to all sign the New Green Deal, which actually won't have any noticeable effect, by the way, because it's got no binding clauses. So we can spend as much money as we want. None of the nations that sign up to the Paris Accord that they're talking about, none of them are actually obligated to actually do anything about easing their carbon footprint in the least. You know, so we're just throwing money away for nothing. And besides, uh, the biggest polluter isn't us. Uh, the biggest polluter is China. You know, and they're not they're not about to change the way they're living. So all that stuff, is it just a narrative about, like, we should all unite together and ease our carbon footprint and stuff like that? I was thinking it would be an interesting movie if it was a little bit more than that. But uh, you, you seem to indicate from your description of it that that's basically the overriding theme. Which I would like it if it had a nice dark theme where the person that's in the brain suddenly is becoming an alienated entity or something, and then he starts messing around with stuff in their nice, beautiful, Edenic world. You know That, that would be interesting. Well, Does it ever take any directions like that? No, but there's one you might like called Sputnik that was released. This is a, an interesting one, too, because uh, last July or last August, it was when... Uh, Putin released that vaccine called Sputnik. And the day he released it was the day that in America, we got access to a movie called Sputnik that was made in Russia. And the movie was about cosmonauts who catch a virus. And when they come back down to earth, it turns out the virus turns into a full-blown entity that takes up residence in their esophagus. And then what's crazy about it is when they're asleep at night, it goes out and it feeds and then it goes back. And by feeding, uh, these these things are basically like almost demonic. They they use fear in order to excite their prey, and then they harvest uh, the fear energy and drink the blood. So this is a movie called Sputnik about cosmonauts bringing down a virus that is basically the 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 basis for these aliens. And then of course you find out that the government has worked out a deal behind the scenes in exchange for human victims with these aliens and then had been for 40 years trading in oh interesting yep yeah and that, that sounds like the, the kind of movie that i could uh get into. If, if if actually a question between us and a virus uh, uh we're, we're 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 done we're done viruses are too versatile you know, if a virus ever got artificially intelligent, which would be an interesting movie in itself, an artificially intelligent virus. But if a virus ever reached that kind of level, uh, we're done. You know, with their uh, abilities to adapt, to metamorphize, to transform into more potent versions of themselves, the swiftness which they can overtake things. The human race is done if, if a virus ever becomes artificially intelligent. That would be a movie I wouldn't mind seeing. Well, in a way... The alien as virus is almost like it being intelligent. I mean, it has a sort of, you know, you know, I was looking into, in fact, I went to Roswell recently because I live in the same state. And I, I just recently learned that where the saucer supposedly crashed in 47 is a place called Corona Field, which I thought, well, that's interesting. Corona Field. It got me thinking about this idea of an alien invasion happening in the form of a virus or what we would experience as a virus and then I was looking into other movies like Men in Black 
Another movie deals with the theme of aliens where they're already here and it's a big secret. And one of the main areas that movie takes place in is Corona Park in New York. So I find a lot of interesting references in a lot of these movies to uh, viruses as aliens and, and they kind of conflate the two. Um, another way that the alien is represented. Yeah, well, when you think about it, a virus could be considered an alien entity. It's got a different kind of consciousness, certainly, or a different type of intelligence that certainly wouldn't be human, but whether we can rule it out as actually an actual intelligence is some, something, again, you know, if it's, I, I don't know, you know, these are kind of fascinating topics there because it might be similar to one of these Lovecraftian entities where our human perceptions can't really understand what, what the virus is. And when you think about what the heck is a virus anyhow, you know, what, what is a virus? You know, I mean, can we really, I mean, we've got vaccinations against it. Do they, do they work? I mean, we have to inject some of the virus in, in order to combat the virus. Now that's kind of a fascinating topic too, you know, cause that's like injecting an alien entity into your bloodstream to actually prevent an alien entity from entering your bloodstreams. These are, these are all interesting questions. I, I hope we got some science fiction writers uh, thinking about these things. Well, you know, uh, about. I was looking, what got me looking in this direction was I was looking at the cover of The Economist from back in August where the uh, it was a, a nice work of art, but it was just depicting inner space where you had a virus, you had some bacterium in, within uh, somebody's, uh, you know, as, as underneath the microscope, but artistically rendered. But the way they did it, it looked like outer space, where COVID looked like Sputnik, AIDS looked like little lunar landers, and uh, you have these cells that looked like planets. And so at first, it looks like outer space, then you find out it's inner space. And the title of the magazine was The Aliens Among Us, How the Virus Shapes the World. And it, oh, was, really? <laughs> and it was making this comparison that the infected are almost like aliens, like an alien invasion, kind of like the movie uh, invasion of the body snatchers and if everybody becomes a pod person they take over so in many ways it's it's conflating this idea of a, a virus with an alien invasion yeah and that's even more subtle because like in uh, invasion of the body snatchers uh, the thing it actually has to have some kind of physical contact within it grows a version of you so all those people like remember in the invasion of the body snatchers their bodies would be out somewhere uh, developing, then once the, the thing achieved consciousness, then the other body would crumble away, you know, but this is even more subtle than that, because it's all happening internally, you know, you can't really see anything happening on the surface at all, you know, and who knows if the thing is so sophisticatedly developed that there might not be any sign at all that the virus has taken over, that you become an alien entity in the first place. This would uh, require a very delicate touch on a part of a science fiction writer. I think Lovecraft could have handled something like this, you know, but I, I don't know. You know, I, I would be very interested to see something like that or to read something about that. You know, that's... I'm sure somebody's working on it. Someone had pointed out to me, though, if you look at a lot of movies like Men in Black, the idea is that if somebody's come in contact with the alien, they have to go trace that person down and all of their contacts. Contact tracing, like you would do for a virus, is done in all of these movies. Whenever there's an alien crash... It's always contact tracing. So it's been this kind of a reoccurring theme there, uh, kind of a, an, this idea of a subtle invasion, which you know, kind of brings me to this other topic. A couple of months ago, the Galactic Federation was in the news. And supposedly, and I don't know how you could possibly verify this, but supposedly 
there is a galactic federation in communication with this former Israeli space security chief. And he said that uh, they're not gonna interact with us until we reach a stage where we can understand. Uh, what do you think, have you heard about this galactic federation? No, I haven't. I've been uh, wrapped up in my own subject matter so much that I haven't heard anything about it. That is kind of interesting though. Right, I think it's- So we have to reach a certain level of development. Yeah, that was the part. That was the part I want to run by you. What do you think about this idea that the aliens are here, but they're judging us? I don't know. I I don't know if there's any empirical evidence for that. Or I don't. I'm not one of those people who believe the aliens are us. You know, I'm not one of those kind of people. I think that once a human be transforms into alien, I don't think he goes back. I think he stays an alien, and then he starts having motives that we can't understand necessarily he becomes an entirely different other a totally different kind of thing so whether they're among us or not you know i don't think that it would be like the cozy kind of a relationship the way you know how they sanitize all this they make it all fine you know, aliens are us and then people got t-shirts and alien love and all that kind of stuff but i, I think i think it'd be a lot darker than that i can't See, that it seems like that theme would be like they're waiting for us to reach a certain plateau of knowledge and then they're going to interact with us. That's kind of like the day the earth stood still kind of a thing where Klaatu comes to the planet and then when we're ready to join him, then uh, he, he'll, we'll join group with him and then we'll keep nuclear. Back then it was atomic, you know, so uh, no more atomic wars and stuff. If we reach that kind of level, then we can uh, interact with them and join their group if not then a robot will return in a spaceship and they'll just destroy the earth because they're a threat to everybody it seems like it's that kind of a, a, a theme so i don't know you know i mean uh what if i i would i would think the alien if it's really an alien entity that we probably wouldn't know where its motives were at all can't imagine an alien entry wanting to interact with us or wanting to have us reach a certain plateau level, what would be in it for the alien entity for us to do that? Are they trying to help us? And then we're talking about saviors and divine intervention, stuff like that. Why would an alien entity want us to reach a certain level of knowledge? Could, do they answer that question? Yeah. you know, What's this, in it for the alien? Good, good question. And I've always had a problem with that. I've always had this, this problem with this notion that you have this alien construct as saviors just waiting for us to prove ourselves or they're going to judge us or if we start developing certain types of weapons, they're going to um, stop that. I, I thought it's somewhat condescending. It's like, you know what, if you're here, uh, you know, give us life extension and we'll fix our problems. But lurking in the background makes me think if, if there was such a thing, that they're probably not on our side. Or maybe we're some sort of experiment. Yeah, this is the kind of science fiction that I don't like because it's human-centric again. You know, it's based on kind of a religious notion. You know, a person that writes that kind of science fiction, they're viewing the aliens or the extraterrestrials as like saviors, kind of like some kind of divine being. And then they're, they're judging us. They want us to finally join them, join hands with them and stuff like a Jesus figure or a religious leader or something like that. But that's an imposition that a human being who wants like some kind of father figure or savior figure to actually save them. That's a kind of vision or view that they would impose upon something outside themselves religion's not doing it for them so maybe popular culture will do it for them but it seems like that's human-centric as opposed to alien-centric and i always tend to look at things 
in terms of the alien-centric view, and I have to just ask the question, like I said before, what's in it for the alien? If they save us, who cares? You know, are we even worth saving? You know, look what we've done to our our environment and stuff. We've got the global warming and everything. Are we even worth saving? So what's in it for the aliens? Why are they doing that? Why do they want to help us? I mean, I understand why God sent his only begotten son. He wanted to save us from sin and stuff. He wants us to go to heaven and everything. But what's in it for these aliens? Right. Great points here. And the human-centric aspect of it is definitely unbelievable and it sounds like uh well they're hoping for a savior to replace these other uh, stories something more believable and science is something of a savior as well in this context and absolutely i'm kind of not into that i've always been more into hp lovecraftian where the lovecraftian entities are uh, not even concerned with us they're definitely indifferent and in many ways um we exist because they haven't noticed us yet. And that's kind of another thing. Uh, Stephen Hawking once talked about this, saying that if there are aliens out there, we probably wouldn't want to be noticed because they probably would be hostile towards us. And uh, that's kind of my thinking here. Like, when is Mother Nature all that inviting that, you know, that you've seen? Yeah, it's... Uh... I, I actually agree with you on that. You know, that's my kind of uh, science fiction. You know, when we don't approach it from the human standpoint, because the human standpoint is flawed. And then science, like that's an old '50s concept too. That science is going to save us. You know, all those movies like Earth versus the Flying Saucers and the War of the Worlds. Well, the War of the Worlds is kind of like more of a religious kind of a thing. You know, at the end. You know, I mean, I think H.G. Wells mentioned it. Uh, they killed the aliens because of one of the smallest things that God in his wisdom gave to humankind. So uh, the viruses that we had killed the aliens. So that was God's will. So that's religious there. But ones like Earth versus the flying saucers or some of these other uh, bug-eyed monster kind of things, science always comes to save us in the end. You know, they come up with some this kind of device or this kind of weapon. And then the world will say they do the same thing in the Independence Day kind of things too and everything but i'll tell you science does not have a good track record look what science has done it does not have a track record i would not put my faith on science to save us if they're if we're facing aliens i won't put my trust on science you know science has created all sorts of terrible weapons they uh, create all sorts of concepts that aren't really in alignment with lo- the longevity of either the planet or ourselves so i won't put my faith in science and lovecraft didn't either You'll find that when he portrays scientists in his uh, stories, they're very imperfect and they're very limited. And sometimes they're almost comically portrayed, like they are in a color out of space, for instance. You know, so Lovecraft didn't put his faith in anything. He had no faith in gods, goddesses, science, technology. He had no faith in humanity whatsoever. You know, so, and I don't know why, but I really find his views to be very sophisticated and compelling. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist. And I don't think Lovecraft is a pessimist either, but I find his view to be, uh, shall I say, a mature view of what's likely out there or, or maybe not. What I, what I like about Lovecraft is his protagonists, they're always seekers. So they're, they're seeking after the hidden all, not always, but many of them are. They're looking for these books. They're researching into the forbidden territory. Um, oftentimes having things that have been kept off limits. So it's his exploration of the unknown, and I think that's the part that makes him science fiction. Horror, the horror aspect of Lovecraft, is what he uncovers with his scientific explorations. And these two areas intersect. 
And so in your book on H.P. Lovecraft, you mentioned one of the authors you talked about is Kenneth Grant. And I wanted to yeah. return to that briefly because Kenneth Grant is a very interesting figure for people who are um, new to this. Kenneth Grant would be uh, probably the successor uh, to Aleister Crowley if he had one. So uh, what's, your, um, what's your take on Kenneth Grant's body of work um, briefly here? With well, okay, Kenneth Grant, first of all, yeah, I, I would say that he's actually a viable successor to uh, uh, Aleister Crowley because he was the most original successor. You know, now I was a member of the OTO, the California OTO, when I was very young, like in my 70s. And so I got into Kenneth Grant, but Kenneth Grant was actually did some creative things with the Crowley uh, stories. And the other people that followed Crowley didn't. You know, they were largely just performing the OTO rituals, you know, as is, as Crowley wrote. But Grant had a whole different interpretation of, uh, of Crowley. And what he was arguing, it's in his main work, is like Aleister Crowley and the Hidden God. But what he argues basically is that... Um, that uh, the God, uh, and you, you know the Book of the Law, you know what the Book of the Law is. Yes, we, we talked about it here the other day, and for people who are new, Book of the Law is a, a channeled book that forms the basis for Aleister Crowley's religion, if you want to call it a religion. And this, this book, it's kind of short, but yeah, the Book of the Law spells out what needs to happen to bring about the New Age. Yeah, well, what happens in the Book of the Law, Crowley was a very... Uh, uh, he, he, I guess you'd have to say he was a paternalistic religious figure. The God, he's got the gods Nuit in the Book of the Law, but he's also got uh, the god Horus and then the god Hadid. And it's basically a kind of an Egyptian pantheon. And what happens is it's basically a patriarchal kind of a thing. It's kind of man-centered. Women have subordinate role. You know, like do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. You're viewing that in terms of a man, and then women are kind of like supporting figures. Love is a law, love under will. What Grant did is he interpreted Crowley rather than just uh, a uh, paternalistic religion, but he, he interpreted it in terms of like uh, maternalistic religion. And so he stressed more like the feminine aspect of it. And then he looked at like uh, the way he called the entities on the dark side of the tree of life. Now, Crowley's system is based on the tree of life, where you, uh, and he, he actually followed this all the way through. Like he joined the Golden Dawn, and then when he formed his own, own OTO, when you reach enlightenment, you travel up the tree of life, and you have these different experiences. And they're all kind of mystical or psychological experiences. What Grant did is he looked at the uh, back side of the tree of life, the dark thing where they got all these. Uh, Quiloptic entities are called, you know, they're the the dark gods and gods is behind the tree of life. And that's where he, he deals with, you know. So he actually subverted the paternalistic Crowley to kind of a maternalistically matriarchal religion based on dark gods and chaotic gods behind the tree of life. And then in addition to that, he uh, formulated his, whole, his own set of rituals, OTO rituals, and he blended them with darker people. Now, he was very drawn to Lovecraft, so he brought Lovecraft and his pantheon right into his system. Uh, I've read all of Kenneth Grant's books, and I have an entire chapter about Grant in H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition. It's very interesting. Uh, Grant's books are rather odd they're a real experience to read but they're not real comprehensible he spends a lot of time uh interpreting words based on their numbers 
and their significance. And so they're, they're a little bit more difficult to read. But I would recommend for people that are interested in Kenneth Grant, definitely read the, the Magical Revival. That was his first one. And he introduces Lovecrafting themes there. And then Aleister Crowley and the Hidden God, of course. And then my favorite one was the uh, Night Side of Eden. And that's where he talks about those coleoptic entities. And he has certain uh, hints about how you can conjure these things. And I did a lot of that kind of work when I was younger. I used to do Western magic before I got into Lovecrafting magic exclusively. So I did a lot of Kenneth Grant. Kenneth Grant's stuff is actually quite difficult to get, though. And it's very, very pricey. Right, very right. Pricey. I came across his book, uh, The Hidden God and The Night Side of Eden, at some old bookstore. And I couldn't resist. I mean, they're amazing. They're, they're beautiful books. The artwork is incredible. Uh, thick, hardback books and very dense, difficult to read. Uh, he definitely does a lot of these uh, Kabbalistic uh, uh, calculations and shows these connections. Very interesting work. Uh, but yes, he incorporates the Lovecraftian mythos into it. And I was, like I said, I was really into H.P. Lovecraft, read all his books, and I find this stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And so. Yeah. When I was younger, I used to read all that stuff. Like I read the Satanic Bible, Satanic Rituals. I read Grant. I read Lovecraft. And it seemed like Lovecraft kept cropping up all the time. You know, he's in Grant. He's in Anton LaVey's things. And then there were other Cthulhu Mythos writers, and they're talking about Lovecrafting stories. So it seems you couldn't really get away from Lovecraft. And I was fascinated by, like, the interdependence between all those concepts. But the Dark Lord, you've got the Dark Lord. And what that is, uh, the Hidden God. The Hidden God is actually the God Set. The dark god. That's the dark brother of Horus. So what he does is he transforms Crowley's uh, real bright, sunny uh, the, uh, Egyptian kind of system into a system on the dark side of Eden where the gods set and darkness and the matriarchal. But it's very fascinating read for people. I would advise people to download the PDF so not buy the books. I was going. I had the last two uh, for my uh, book on on. Uh, the Black Magical Systems. So I wanted to read all of Kenneth Grant's, and I had, when I was younger, I had copies of all those other ones. So they were pretty reasonably priced back then. They were like thirty-five dollars or forty dollars. But I was going to buy the last two ones in the volumes, and they're all uh, the publishers out of print now. A, a company called Scoob, and then another company called Starfire. They took it over, but they were very limited editions. I was going to buy the last two, but it was incredible. One of them was like eight hundred dollars, and one was like. $900 for these book, books. So what I did was for those last two, I just simply downloaded the PDFs. You know, I wasn't going to spend that kind of money. Okay. But luckily, I've got them all. You know, but what's interesting, he constantly repeats himself. From uh, he had the it's called the Typhonian trilogies, and he'll deal with the same themes and concepts throughout the entire trilogy. So there's a lot of overlapping systems, but they're a bit of a challenge for people because he's always breaking off his narrative to add up words. He'll say, now here we have. Uh, I H V H, and if that if we add up, that equals twenty six, and then that parallel that parallels to this or that on the tree of life. So he's constantly doing stuff like that, and it kind of might irritate some readers, I would think. Right. Well, you know, it is, yeah, that stuff. I find it interesting. Uh, the 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 numbers, the symbols, and how these things correlate. Uh, I've I've read Crowley's book seven seven seven, where he shows these correspondences. It is very interesting. It can be tedious to read. However, um. The patterns are there, you know, people see patterns in things, they notice things, and they try to interpret what they mean. 
and this is a symbolic system and whether or not you agree with his conclusions or what it's about it is a system and it's it's very well it's it's very complicated but at the same time i think it's worth looking into because i think that this form of occultism is uh, inherent in a few other things so for example if you go back before kenneth grant you had a jack parsons oto um there in california what are your thoughts on jack parsons briefly uh, jack parsons was something else he uh was actually uh he joined the oto and he was war he was trying to like incarnate uh, uh some kind of incarnation of babylon you know the babylon that crowley believed in and stuff but uh he kind of went off the deep end there he was uh involved in uh in chemistry and nu nuclear uh and uh, propulsion, jet propulsion work in California. And uh, he got into the magical things and he started having visions. A lot of the people that follow Crowley would start having visions and they would try and uh, uh, write their own versions of like books of the law and stuff like that. It used to irritate Crowley tremendously because they kept wanting to like, Crowley had the eon of Horus and that was supposed to last like 2,000 some odd years to re replacing the Christian one, the Piscean Eon, and these people kept having their little visions, and then they kept trying to rewrite Crowley. Like his magical son, Charles Stansfield Jones, uh, declared a new eon uh, almost like within like uh, a couple years of Crowley's. And then uh, Parsons was doing that too. He was like, he wrote something called the Book of Babylon. It was like transmissions from supposedly transdimensional things, but they're all human centric, by the They're very human centric savior types like the kind we were talking about before and then a couple other ones did that too but crowley kind of lost patience with him after a while because he could see that they were kind of, they were kind of nutcases as far as crowley was concerned but uh parsons blew himself up you know he was involved in jet propulsion and he got himself wrapped up with uh l ron hubbard and then he got involved with uh a, wo a woman too and then Hubbard was sleeping with a woman or something and then they were doing magic and then he wasn't really well focused and one time he just you know he was in his laboratory and he just blew himself up accidentally I presume it was accidentally right there's but actually there's actually a TV show now it's really I watched the first season it's actually quite good it's called Strange Angel and it's the story of Jack Parsons I haven't seen the second season but they do show his um, entry into the uh, the the group the OT the group I think it's the order he joined. Yeah, it, was, it was a California OTO. I forget what what lodge it was, but it was a California OTO. Well, they recreate that pretty well. And what was interesting is they're showing how he kind of innovated this uh, jet assisted takeoff. And they did the countdown to his um, his innovation on this. So his plane's going to take off, and they're doing the countdown from ten, nine, eight, seven. And while they're doing the countdown, they keep flashing to a scene in the temple where they're doing this like a uh, uh, sex magic ritual and they're showing a correspondence between the two because yes uh, you know jack parsons and you know he was into the rocket science but he also mixed in with his um occult practices and he treated the rocket in many ways as an obelisk as a symbol of the uh oh, the that's an interesting interpretation right that's interesting well did he blow himself up or is this like some kind of miniseries he's still doing it you know, I would like to know, um, and I think it is really kind of interesting how he and L. Ron Hubbard were trying to, I believe, incarnate the Antichrist. Yeah, the Moonchild. They were trying to incarnate some kind of uh, entity to actually impregnate 
the girl now would give birth to like the moonshot. Uh, Crowley actually explores that theme in his novel, The Moonshot. If you want a good book on Parsons, by the way, there's one called The Occult. Uh, what's it called? Uh, the Occult World of Jack Parsons. I forget what the title is. I Love and called. Rockets. I think it's Love and Rockets. Lo- yeah, Sex and Rockets. Sex is better than love. Sex and Rockets is the title of the book. It's called Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons. I have a copy of it somewhere. I had this immense library here, and I can't lay my hands on every single one of my books right now, but it's in here somewhere. But that's a real good – it's actually a real good account. But, yeah, he was a member of the OTO. Uh, he was a member of a lodge that was was just only vaguely associated with a lodge that I was a member of in California. But I left the OTO on good terms, but I left him because it didn't seem like uh, that was a way to go. You know, I mean, just doing the sex magic and the occultism, it, it didn't seem like I was getting anywhere with it. And it, it, it seemed like I was getting myself involved with entities that were just kind of human-centric entities, things that I created in my own mind. And uh, I want something that was outside of my mind. I wasn't getting it from the OTO, you know, but I wish them all well. You know, I, I was with him for a few years. Okay. Grady McMurthy's uh, OTO, the Agape Lodge, that was the one I was a member of back in the 70s. Again, we're getting into this topic because, uh, as you said, H.P. Lovecraft, his mythos, his, his ideas, they're, they're, they crop up in all these places, the works of uh, Kenneth Grant. And then you mentioned Anton LaVey, which... In one of his books, they do have an actual ritual where they, it's a theatrical performance where they're basically calling uh, Cthulhu from a lake. And they have like, I think they use a torch and they do a whole ceremony. Yeah, that's in the chapter. That's in the chapter called The Metaphysics of Lovecraft. They also have one they call Cthulhu. And I've actually performed that ritual, if you want to know. Okay, I performed that in the 1980s. I performed that. I rewrote sections of it so I could vibrate. Well, you have to vibrate the names where nothing really happens and uh, Anton LaVey didn't vibrate anything but uh, I performed that ritual by a lake just like it says and the other ritual is the ceremony of the nine angles I talk about both of those rituals in my H.P. Lovecraft and Black Magical Tradition but those are LaVey's two contributions to the mythos and they're very good you know the other, the other one uses electrical uh, things like carbon arcs and stuff to actually give the atmosphere. Though Cthulhu ritual is just right out there by a swampy lake, and it's just perfect. The atmosphere is just the environment itself, you know. And they're effective enough, you know. So. Uh, uh, okay, and you know, because that's again. He didn't write those. He didn't write those rituals, you know. His uh, second in command, Levee's second in command, was a guy named Michael Aquino, and he was a member of the Church of Satan back then. He wrote all those ritual texts. Okay, so Michael Aquino is a very interesting character. Um, I talk about his work in Mind Wars and Psychological Operations. His manual is uh, almost a, a must-read for anybody who wants to read about uh, psychological operations and culture wars. So Michael Aquinos was the second-in-command with Anton LaVey, and then he split and formed, it was what, the Temple of Set, correct? Yes, yeah, it was, uh, he called it Sadian or whatever he called it, yeah, it was Set devoted to the God set. So he was kind of following Grant a lot because Grant's hit, supposedly hidden God was the God set, you know. So I guess he probably based a lot on Grant. You know, Grant, he was the most original of all of them. He was the most original uh, magical practitioner after Crowley, Crowley among all of them. You know, he got expelled, you know, he got expelled from the OTO because he wasn't following the uh, status quo, you know. 
Most of the old team members, they just follow what Crowley laid down. I don't know if you've read, I got a copy of it. It's called The, S- the Secret Rituals of the OTO. But all the uh, lesser rituals are in there. And then the higher rituals, of course, are the sex magic rituals, you know. So, uh, But most of them just follow those things and they memorize the book of law and stuff. But there's not a lot of creativity going on there. But Grant was an innovator, you know, there's no question about it. Right. And, yeah, and so for... Like in H.P. Lovecraft, in a lot of his stories, some of his stories, it dealt with um, these rituals that people would witness near the swamps. Um, he described, you know, orgies, rituals. Describing, in other words, we're getting into this area here of, you know, where magic uh, turns into uh, this seeming, I guess, process of raising energy levels out of people or something. I mean, how do you describe the type of magic as depicted in H.P. Lovecraft? Like, what are they actually doing? What are these entities? Well, they're trying. In most cases, in the magical ones, the ones that deal with magical persona, what they're doing, they're trying, usually trying to get in touch with transdimensional entities, basically for various reasons. And uh, some of the reasons are specified; some aren't. You know, like in uh, Dunwich Horror, uh, Wilbur Whaley comes from a generation of magical practitioners. His father, which they call uh, Wizard Whaley, he was actually trying to incarnate. He was trying to do what. Jack Parson was trying to do what Crowley was doing in Moonshot. He was trying to have one of the transdimensional entities impregnate his daughter. And uh, then he wanted to create hybrid children. And he, he succeeds in doing that. That's the only successful ritual that he, do, he does succeed at. And what happens is that Lavinia Waitley is his, his daughter's name. And she's a kind of a crinkly-haired, albino woman. You know, here's some of Lovecraft's charming racism and everything else coming out in that story but she gives birth to twins and one twin twin is Wilbur Whaley and his head head looks fine his lower body his arms look fine but he's always wears tightly buttoned up clothing because a lot of the outside is in that part that you can't see there and the other twin they have to keep him locked up in the Whaley farmhouse he's a total gigantic he, well, he starts out smaller but he becomes a gigantic protoplasmic monster and so the twin, he's got twins, and that twin takes more after Yogg Sothoth than uh, Wilbur Whaley does. So in that case, they're using magic to actually achieve the same kind of ends that Jack Parson was trying to achieve. Incarnating, but it's not incarnating a moon child. You know, see, that's the problem with Parsons and Crowley, too. They're, they're, the things they're trying to do, they're trying to get in touch with human-centric gods, and then they're trying to create human-centric hybrids, like the moon child is simply a beautiful little baby girl with like a crescent on her thing. And Jack Parsons, he had this beautiful woman they was performing sex magic with, and they were trying to incarnate a beautiful human being, kind of like to be a savior, a prophet for, for mankind and stuff. So they're very human-centric. In Lovecraft, there's none of that. You know, what you get is like these amorphous, you know, rather repulsive, disgusting, half-human and, ha- and transdimensional children, you know, so so that was a goal in that, in the Dunwich War, to use the transdimensional energy for that, but they use them for other purposes, too, like in Dreams in a Witch House, the witch Kiza Mason and her familiar Brown Jenkin, they initiate Walter Gilman into their cult, and they're in touch with uh, Nyarlathotep, which is one of the great old ones, and what they're doing there is they're trying to initiate him into the cult, and the cult involves... Uh, traveling uh, by uh, stepping out of dimensions into alternate and into alternate dimensions, alternate universes, by the way scientists talk about stepping into space-time, 
the fourth dimension and then going back to regular uh, dimensions or regular uh, universes with the way we're surprised, our space-time continuum, three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. So there, the trans-dimensional entities are assisting in doing things like time travel and dimensional travel. So, you know, they, they, the uh, magical practitioners use magic for a number of different motives and goals. Now, that's where you, ran, you mentioned ceremony of the nine angles. Angles. And it's not angels, which it's angles, because, yeah, you're talking angles. about distortions in uh, space-time within H.P. Lovecraft. Very, very interesting material here. And, hey, we're reaching the end of our uh, third hour here. I want to make sure that the people who are listening are able to find your work and read your latest book. And and anybody interested in Lovecraft or magic, uh, the occult, Jack Park, I would recommend getting your book on H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition. Oh, it's going to tell you everything you want to know about Lovecraft's connection, but it's going to give you what I try and do is provide information, and they're funny information, but also information that's... Uh, that you don't get anywhere else, and then it's all summarized in a way where it's totally comprehensible. You don't always understand what Kenneth Grant is writing about, but the way I present, you'll understand exactly what he's writing about and how he's connected to Lovecraft. So you're going to get a real good uh, overview, and in some cases, a very in-depth view of these black magical systems, and then you're going to get a very good view of what the different Necronomicons are, what the great old ones are, and what Lovecraft's views on magic and occultism were in general. So you're going to get all that stuff. So that book is a real good investment as a starting point. Like once you read it, what I do in all my books, like in the second one too, I'm hoping that people read my book and then they go to the original sources. Like when they read this Aliens and Robots, I hope they go to Lovecraft, Asmuth, and Gibson's and actually read their works. And I try and give my readers a sense of what it's like in those works so I'll make it tantalizing to him to do that to go to the original source same thing with the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and the Black Magical System I want people to go and read read Kenneth Grant you know read Anton LaVey you know I mean we got a lot of Satanist cults out there a lot of them are very superficial but the core satanic beliefs are there with that original Church of Satan so you can read that read what chaos magic is all about or what the roots of the Wiccan religion were, you know, or the voodoo. And if you like the tie-in with the Loa idols in Gibson, you'll like that too, because I go into detail what exactly the Loa are, how you get in touch with them, and how they relate to Lovecraft's uh, uh, extraterrestrial and transdimensional entities. So the books give you a lot of really cool information if you like that sort of information. I, okay, excellent. Well, this has been an excellent uh, conversation and, and talk. Uh, John, we have to do this again. Like I said, I'm going to send out a, a newsletter and I'm going to send people to your book. And, you know, hopefully we can follow up soon after this. And um, any social media accounts I should send people to, you know, Twitter or Facebook? Well, I mean, if you go to John L. Stedman, you got to put the L in or you get some guy named John Stedman. There was an old actor in some uh, movies like the, uh, oh, what was my, oh, it doesn't matter. He's an old actor. He died recently. If you put John Stedman, you'll get him. If you put John L. Stedman on the Google line, You'll get my information. Apparently, I've been granted a knowledge panel up in the right corner because I'm an authority figure now, according to the algorithms. But in any case, you can get all the books there. I would advise uh, 
getting the best deal possible. But it's all over the place. You know, it's not only on Amazon. It's, uh, you can get it at Thrift Books. You can get it at Google Books and stuff like that. So that will give you all the information you need. If you want to go on my website, one thing good is John L. Stedman or www.johnlstedman.com. The thing cool about my website is all the interviews I've ever done, they're all in there. Like I have a whole list of events. And like when we get done with this interview tomorrow, I'll put it at the top of the list. And then I'll have a little link. So you can link up to every single interview that I've done. If you just scroll down that particular page, all my reviews and endorsements and stuff, they're all listed there. And then the two books, I have links to the publishers and then to Google and Amazon for them. So you can do it. And then I got my blog too, which is hooked up to the website. So all these resources will give people more than enough and probably, as I said before, probably too much information about about, about me. You know, Very go, good. Go to those places. Okay, I'm there now. I'm putting a link in the chat. And, hey, this has been a great talk. People in the comments have uh, definitely enjoyed this. And we, I hope so. We will do it again. So have a great night, and I'll touch base with you via email after. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, have a great night. All right, everyone, that's John Ooh. L. Stedman, johnlstedman.com. Uh, this is Midnight in the Desert. I'm your host, Tim Osman. We're going to do this hopefully every Saturday night, if not more frequently. Uh, if you want to hear the replay, you'll have to go to darkmatter.radio, and uh, I'll post a link there. And I'm also going to post links to his social media and his blog. This is Bow Down Babylon by Empress Infinite. Have a great night.